Welcome to One Sweet Dream, a podcast where we explore the dream that was and is the Beatles. This is If I Ran Away From You, our series on the Beatles breakup. After several months, we're pleased to present listeners with a new, dense, and wholly unique take on the days leading up to the infamous divorce meeting. As always, this is the result of extensive research, debate, and arduous pressure testing. As a heads up to listeners, the Breakup Series will soon be moving to our spin-off podcast, One Sweet Dream. Phoebe and I will continue to post episodes of the Breakup Series to One Sweet Dream, so please subscribe. Another Kind of Mind will also continue to post fabulous new content, as usual, so stay tuned. And now, back to the show. You know, if you break my heart, I'll go. As we approach the 50th anniversary of the Beatles' breakup, one thing seems clear. Why it happened remains mysterious. It's time to revisit the evidence, pressure testing the old tropes and applying sensitivity and emotional intelligence to our analysis. Come with us on a deep, deep dive across several episodes where we unpack and examine the emotional roots of this complex topic. In a nutshell, we believe this was all a high-stakes game of chase that spun out of control. The end game was never to end the Beatles or for Lennon and McCartney to separate as a creative partnership. We don't see this as primarily a battle for dominance within the band, but rather an elaborate play for respect love, appreciation, and commitment. Join us for this radical retelling of The Breakup. I thought that you would realize That if I ran away from you That you would want me to In our last episode, we discussed the details of the 4442 meeting on September 8th, where John proposed a song, a concept for the next Beatles album, and the idea for a Christmas single. But John's suggestions were met with apparent indifference, while his complaints were seemingly ignored. And we hypothesized that the Beatles' refusal to record Cold Turkey, combined with Paul's unwillingness to follow John's new vision for the band, may have left Lennon feeling frustrated and powerless. So our challenge now is to figure out what happened next. In episode 9, we'll take a deeper look at what's going on with John. In episode 10, we'll focus on Paul. This period is typically glossed over, as John's decision to quit the band is always portrayed as a foregone conclusion. But we don't think it was. 
and we believe John's statements and behaviors in this critical 10-day period revealed drastic swings in his emotional state, which influence and alter his point of view. In this episode, we track the roller coaster of highs and lows that led to John's startling declaration on the 20th. We'll attempt to understand and interpret what happened in the space between these two critical meetings, from the point where John is still in to the moment where he declares he wants out. Before we jump back in, we want to share a quote from John. In August of 1971, he told Alan Smith, Well, there was this Japanese monk, and it happened in the last 20 years. He was in love with this big golden temple. You know, he really dug it. And he was so in love with it that he burnt it down so that it would never deteriorate. That's what I did with the Beatles. There's a lot to unpack in this statement. We'll address the idea of burning down and deterioration in the next episode. But I think sometimes we can't see the forest for the trees. And what gets lost in all the mythology around the breakup is this simple, important truth. John was so in love with the Beatles. Okay, so the next thing that we have uh, on the calendar is John and Yoko's film premiere, which uh, takes place on September 10th. And it's at the New Cinema Club at the Institute of Contemporary Arts in London. And they hosted the premiere of two films by John and Yoko, Self-Portrait and Mr. and Mrs. Lennon's Honeymoon. Okay. And I'm not sure what, um, it says three earlier films, Rape, Smile, and Two Virgins were also shown. I guess it's the premiere of those two films, and then these other films were shown. Right. Like, the, those three were, I think, made in 1968. Yeah. It's shown that night and as so, well. In collab- in- so it's maybe not the world premiere. Like <laughs> right, they right, might right. have shown them someplace else in London <laughs> at some point. Right. Right. So, But it was, a, it was a film extravaganza for John and Yoko on that evening. Just to clarify for everyone, self-portrait was a slow-motion study of Lennon's penis becoming erect i guess it was not his penis's debut well it might have been his um penis's first uh moving picture it's true debut it's true not necessarily you know yes we we had uh, seen photos (laughs) but um (laughs) we've seen stills of it we had not seen it in action yeah so this is what if you want to call it that (laughs) yeah (laughs) but in any case (laughs) (laughs) we have not seen this film unfortunately i have not no, in fact, I don't think I don't think anybody has actually because apparently it did not run again. Right, it got conveniently lost after <laughs> that one showing. Exactly. <laughs> None of the other Beatles are there. They have these little events that seem to be quite separate from the Beatles, which is interesting in itself. In that, for all of their talk, John and Yoko have a lot of freedom to do whatever they want outside of the Beatles. Oh, sure. You know. Yeah, well, as you and I were discussing, one of the annoying parts of Peter Doggett's book is he's like, the Beatles were so restrictive to John Lennon, and 
he just couldn't be the free artist that he wanted to be within the constraints of the Beatles. Well, it sounds like he could right. he do anything he wanted. Right. What, what was he trying to do? The, who was stopping him? Well, dogged is egregious, but they all do that. They all talk about the fact that they you know, do that. John John just needed to break free to do his own thing. Like you know, it's interesting because he he was doing a lot of these happenings during the year. John and Yoko weren't getting positive feedback from it, but the Beatles weren't putting an end to it. I think that they moved away from it because they just weren't getting any real traction from it. And they, yeah. they turned to where they were getting traction. But It's an excellent point. Yeah. The bagism and the, the films, not really very well received, but like the one thing that they are, as you said, getting positive feedback for are the peace efforts. That's the image that people like that's mm-hmm. what the public is w- willing to ex- accept but this idea that the beatles were holding john back from doing his avant-garde work it's bullshit <laughs> it's, a, it's just it's a, a joke it's a joke yeah. yeah i mean he he was able to do anything he wants the other beatles may not have liked it but they didn't stop them so we have a quote from from ray Connolly actually about this particular film And he says, I never saw it, and I suspect John became embarrassed by it, as it was only ever shown once publicly. But I remember Paul McCartney's expression of anguished bewilderment and frustration when, running into him on the stairs at the Beatles' Apple headquarters, I told him about it. (laughs) Can you imagine being Ray Connolly? (laughs) (laughs) Right, breaking this news. (laughs) Hey, Paul, did you see... John's latest film. And Paul's like, what the fuck is John doing? <laughs> like, what? It's a film about John's dick? And he also might know that John's going to regret that. Well, for sure. I mean, <laughs> but he doesn't do anything about it. He's bewildered and frustrated, but well, he's not what can he? What can he do? Yeah, totally. What can he do? If you heard through the grapevine that your best friend put like a twat movie out and showed it to people in an art museum, wouldn't you be like, what? What? What's wrong? What? What? <laughs> she okay? It's true. He's not like rushing off and disowning John or saying, John, you can't do this. In no way is John limited. I mean, it's worth just flagging and saying it wasn't a thing. This isn't a reason. Right, 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 right. <laughs> So, well, it's like, oh, Paul McCartney was so conservative, and that's why he would hate the dick movie. It's not Paul clutched his pearls and said, oh, my dear Lord, I do declare <laughs> John Lennon's penis on an, on an art museum. <laughs> He's just like, what? Oh, why? Well, yeah, anguished bewilderment. <laughs> like, oh, John. Oh. <laughs> okay. You got to be you, dude, yeah. I guess. I mean, you know. didn't you already do that six months ago? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. What exactly is John looking for? What does he want to hear about his dick that he keeps showing it to people? Yeah, because there is the two virgins. There's this film where there's other photos that come out from the time where he's, you know, proudly on display. There's some. Yeah, yeah. I have a few, a few of them that that I have access (laughs) to. So they're not. It it sounds kind of bad. I have a few of them on my phone. (laughs) (laughs) I check them out occasionally. No, but it's it is it is worth thinking about. Like why. Because this is this was fairly limited to this period of time, right? Like the, John goes through a period, you know. It's talked about basically that he's just so sexual with Yoko, and, <laughs> yeah. and, but it's not that. Like these are not they're not doing porn. 
Or yeah. taking like sexy pictures. It's just him like with his hands on his hips, like, burp, burp, here's my penis. <laughs> it's just sort of like just sticking out there, you know. Like here, it's like here he I wants am. feedback or something. <laughs> like what what is the feedback you're looking for, my man? That's a penis, all right. Yes. It's, or just it's like a good, what, it's a good one, John. Maybe it's just like John feels like he's hidden part of himself for a while. And at this point, it's like aggressively putting himself out there. Like, oh, yeah, I dare you to reject me. This is all of me. It's like aggressively preemptive. Or yes, something. exactly. I'm going to put everything right, out right, there. Right, right. And let's see if you still love me. If John's point and Yoko's point is to be provocative, based on Philip French's um, piece in The Observer, okay. it was a bit of a snooze that if their point was to be provocative, they didn't get the reaction that they wanted. The the write-up is like a little, you know, saucy. I mean, it's not insulting. It's just kind of like, well, you tried, uh, but you didn't quite hit right. that one out of the park, guys. Right. It, it's a little bit like he's amused, you know. <laughs> it's not as scathing as the reviews of Magical Mystery Tour, for God's sake. <laughs> the 50 years of bad reviews for Magical Mystery Tour. Oh, my oh, God. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, Paul's still getting roasted about, or or God forbid, you know. Broad Street. Perhaps Paul should have taken his dick out in Broad Street. Well, it couldn't have hurt. So I think we've got a bit of a pattern here. You know, Cold Turkey was not picked up by the Beatles. Then he comes in. He's given some thought to how they could go forward. And that is rejected or doesn't go forward. And then they have this showing and they don't get a lot of reaction from it. It's certainly not a lot of positive reaction. In fact, you know, this is after a year of numerous negative reactions from many of their avant-garde efforts. We have the example from Robert Fraser. He said of John and Yoko's first art show, You Are Here, he said, and this is just a quote from him, the John Lennon show was very poorly received. Looking back on it, it did have a certain pretentious element. It was fun. I don't know if it was art. It wasn't popular. That is their debut in, uh, you know, the avant-garde world. And so right from the start, it hasn't been hugely popular for them. And it's made a, a really big impact on Robert Fraser since he remembers it as <laughs> the John Lennon show. <laughs> exactly. Well, it's, it's a Beatle showing and it wasn't popular. Like, that's incredible. Yeah, that's true. But, and it wasn't like the public was tired of John and Yoko by that point. Yeah, exactly. This, like, this is their debut, their like day one. Day one. Yeah, but it says a, it says a precedent, right? And I think a lot of their avant-garde work was either ridiculed or just kind of like dismissed, like John's gone cuckoo or, you know, John and Yoko yeah. are a little crazy. Two Virgins certainly was not um, a big hit, <laughs> <laughs> either commercially or critically. No. Um, I'd say actually it, it probably has a better critical reputation, uh, like a better critical reputation nowadays. For sure. Yeah. I, I mean, it's not getting on anybody's top 10 list. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Favorite albums ever. Um, yeah. It's definitely still in a, like it's an acquired taste. It's very, very niche. Um, no, no, but no. It, but it has some people who appreciate it now. Yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> that, that nowadays we can understand what they were doing. We can see how it was influential. But I think, you know, the album itself is very different from the cover, which is the part that got the reaction, you know, that was the provocative element. And one of the things that occurs to me that I, that I've never seen anybody ever, ever bring up is like, if they had just put out 
Two Virgins, or Unfinished Music Volume 1, if you want to refer to it by its proper name. Yes. Um, if, you, if they had just put that out with, like, a plain green cover with, like, a speck on it, yeah. you know, or, like, a black line in the corner or something like that, nobody would have ever bought it, you know, but also nobody would have ever cared. But to, to put that deliberately provocative you know, salacious cover on the front of the album it has to be a, a gimmick to sell copies of the album. That's right. I mean, John and Yoko really know how to get attention. He, he's like, you said the Beatles were broken up to sell your records. Like, don't you put your dick on an album cover? <laughs> exactly. And that's true. Get the fuck out of here to, put, to sell a record. John, you don't think maybe anybody bought that album just for the novelty of having the dick album? So we got a, a fun quote from George Harrison about it. George said, I don't think I actually heard all of two versions, just bits of it. I wasn't particularly into that kind of thing. That was his and her affair, their trip. They got involved with each other and were obviously into each other to such a degree that they thought everything they said or did was of world importance. <laughs> and so they made it into records and films. Yeah. I mean... That's pretty interesting, too, that, you know, George in their inner circle couldn't be bothered to listen to it, you know? So, again, if, yeah. if if they think that what they're doing is amazing, they're not coming into work and, you know, getting high fives from Paul and George being like, cool, amazing stuff. George is like, <laughs> yeah, I, I couldn't listen to that, you know? Yeah. And so they're getting it both internally and externally, they're getting a lot of pushback. So, you know, if John is feeling frustrated at this point, it's the culmination of a year of getting pushback right. about the work that they're doing, specifically the avant-garde work they're doing. Well, and I love that his response like, oh, two virgins didn't do it for you, huh? All right, how about a 20-minute film of my penis then? <laughs> <laughs> what, you, what you didn't get was enough of my penis. <laughs> I just got to put asses in the seats. If it doesn't, I'm I'm out. I'm running out of ideas. And it's not like these people don't matter to him. You know, in fact, Dan Richter, their assistant, said that, and I quote here, that John wanted to be cool and accepted as something more than a rock star. You know, that Yoko was his guide, his entree. And he was constantly trying to become more sophisticated. And Ray Connolly thought that John believed the way to doing this was filmmaking. So he cared. Um, And in fact, uh, John and Yoko give several interviews on September 12th. And John's pretty salty about the reviews that he got for his movie. In fact, he was quoted of saying he wanted to let 200 intellectuals sit there and watch a prick for three days. I guess I guess it's a metaphorical three days. That's how long it feels to sit through that movie. I guess. And then, for no apparent reason, he drags Andy Warhol and Stanley Kubrick as well. Like he and Yoko um, both diss Andy Warhol, and Lennon claims his smile film is a million years ahead of uh, 2001: A Space Odyssey. <laughs> So um, this is kind of like a Lenin tactic when he feels embarrassed and doesn't get what he feels is the respect that he deserves as a true genius in the world. He tears down somebody he feels is better than him. Or that I, is getting re- the respect in the world. Despite what he says to, you know, whatever newspaper. I think it's 
not meaningless that he goes after two filmmakers that he's probably watching with great interest at this time, you know? It's a way of diminishing them too and elevating himself. And, you know, this is actually a trick that John often employs. What he does is he equates himself or Yoko with the best of the best in the field, which makes them contemporaries. Like in this instance, he's comparing himself to Warhol and Kubrick. So all of a sudden he is in their company and one of their equals. And he does this later with Yoko, you know, equating her to Dylan and Paul or in fact, you know, Dylan and Paul combined, which again, you know, does the trick of elevating her. All of a sudden, Yoko is equal to Paul McCartney and Bob Dylan because he's yeah. comparing them on an equal playing field, you know? Right, and, and also Beethoven. That's right, <laughs> <laughs> Beethoven, the con, Beethoven. <laughs> yes, Yoko Ono is Beethoven, Bob Dylan, and Paul McCartney all rolled into one. <laughs> exactly, but you can see how he does that and how effective it is that all of a sudden they're in the same mind space He's verbally put them in the same boat. You know, all of a sudden, your brain just groups them together. And he, and he's he did the same thing when he when he rebranded and you know Lennon remembers. He was like, I don't want to be remembered as a great guitarist. I want to be remembered as a great artist. You know, like I'm Fellini or yeah. You know, I'm Van Gogh. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's like if Kanye keeps saying he's a genius, people people started to say, yeah, Kanye's a genius. That's right. Well, that's what John did too. <laughs> There's also this really weird idea, like, oh shit, only a genius would say that. Oh my God. <laughs> not, that they're a crazy, well, not that they're a crazy person. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I, know, like, I happen to believe John and Paul are geniuses, but still, you know, it does, it gives permission to other people. By the way, have you seen Smile? Because I've seen it. It is not better than 2001. <laughs> and it's pretty it's pretty audacious for uh, Yoko Ono to dismiss Andy Warhol's film efforts considering that, you know, the her film of John watching a building being erected is basically a ripoff of Empire by Andy Warhol, which is just like a shot like a however long it was, I don't remember, 7 hours maybe mm. of of a static shot of the Empire State Building, which she, which he had done years before her, of course. So, I mean, well, there's a, her... there's a story about Paul Andy. <laughs> I think it's in many years from now. Oh, that's right. Like, like, um, it, it was screened at his at Cavendish. Yes, or something. yes, and Andy like yeah. was there watching it, watching Paul watch it. <laughs> right? Yeah. Right. Right. And this is in like 1966 yeah, or yeah, something, yeah. and Yoko's making this film in 1969. So again, you know, if they don't get the reaction that they want, they lash out yep. at other people who really have nothing to do with it. I mean, what did Andy <laughs> Warhol do to them? Right. Right. What did Kubrick do? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, the, the quote of let 200 intellectuals sit there and watch a prick for three days shows such anger and contempt for yeah. the people that, you know, he wants to, impress. he wants to impress, you know, if, if they were embracing his film, I think that he would be singing their praises. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, exactly. But somehow they did not actually get the genius of those films. And so now they're pricks. He's, he's like, it's, it was a setup anyway. Right. You know, there's, a, there's an aggressiveness to John at this point, you know, in terms of like, we're reading his mood. I mean, he's angry. He's angry yeah. that he's not getting the respect and the feedback that he's looking for. 
Because again, according to Connolly, and I quote Connolly because he spent so much time with John and Yoko in this period. So, you know, he is credible. He said that John and Yoko wanted to establish themselves not as a rock star and his arty wife, but as an avant-garde filmmaking couple. So given that that's what they wanted, I think he would have loved the approval of the avant-garde intelligentsia. You know, you look at the books, and there's one line about, oh, they had a film showing. That's because the authors aren't interested in it. I know, but they're not getting under, like, I think if this was John's dream to be this avant-garde filmmaking couple rather than a rock star and his wife, that if they think that's sexier and they're not getting any respect from it, then it would be devastating. It, it should be more taken more seriously. I, I agree. We should be focusing on what John wants and what yeah. John is looking for, yeah. not what the, what the authors are interested in. Like literally there's two books that have come out this year and they spend a second making a joke about it. But you know, <laughs> we've spent hours making <laughs> jokes about them. <laughs> I mean, we're having fun here because some of John and Yoko's adventures in the avant-garde, they were legit a little outrageous. But I want to clarify that we are not laughing at John's desire to broaden his creative canvas or stretch himself as an artist, you know? Like, that's amazing. That's great. I mean, given this is 1969, what they were doing was radical for a rock star and 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 there was a point to what they were doing you know they, they did have an objective and we are certainly never laughing at john's genius as an artist or musician no but but, but dick jokes are funny and you can't get around that and the thing is is that he can he continues to show us his dick and if you're gonna do that i mean then so we get to laugh at it if you're putting your dick out there over and over again and all signs show that no one's interested like, put your dick away or find something else to do. Like, I'm not laughing at his desire to make films. Like, I think that's great. And again, you know, I I will defend Paul's right to do the same thing. But no one, even in Beatles books, people who's, who allegedly care about the Beatles do not ever make the point that Paul was expanding himself as an artist, and it was so bold of him to try to direct like a crazy experimental art right, film right, 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 right. for fucking like, television. Like, Nobody defends him. They don't even acknowledge it. Like, they don't even call him an artist. Call him an artist, yes. Like, they don't even discuss him as a filmmaker. Um, and I don't want to go off on Magical Mystery Tour for too long. I mean, this isn't about Magical Mystery Tour, but I'm just saying. Right, like, right, right. Do you not think that John Lennon would be taking the piss out of Paul McCartney constantly? Oh, my God. He's whipping out his dick all year? Oh, my God. Can you imagine they already think he's an egomaniac if he was whipping his dick out everywhere? <laughs> and then, like, sulking when people aren't taking it seriously. And like Linda's <laughs> taking professional artistic photos of it. <laughs> and then he's coming in and making everybody look at like blown up versions. Like, what do you think? <laughs> and he makes John accompany him to like the head of, you know, <laughs> to like defend EMI. Him. Yes. Defend his, his penis's right to be on the cover of an album. And then making everyone listen to his sex tapes with Linda too. Like, can we just imagine this situation here? Not can you at imagine all. what no. they'd write about Paul? It would be insane 
egomaniac goes off the deep end. Absolutely. Absolutely. Which I think, you know, that was kind of a little bit of, of what John was getting at the time in the press. Um, contemporaneously, that's the feedback he was getting. But in the books now, it's not like people have fun and just say like, you know, John was a bit nuts that year. It's treated with such reverence right now. Well, and, and also the, the thing that's more insidious is that it's mostly erased. Like, you don't see the Lennon Ono estate tweeting out his dick pics now. Like, you do not. No, but you hear things like Doggett's John Lennon could barely tear himself away from his avant-garde exploits long enough to finish Abbey Road, which, again, is treating like he was better off doing Well, exactly. But- like, if that's the case, if I can't stop photographing my dick to make Abbey Road, <laughs> then that's a problem. Like, that's that doesn't well, reflect also, well on him. But, you know, the way it's written and the way it's talked about right now is that, like, Abbey Road was the thing that was pulling him from his higher artistic exploits at the time. Exactly. And what we're saying is like, okay, then let's look at what those things are. One of those things is like the peace movement stuff, which, as we have said, he is getting positive feedback for people like that. That's how his estate chooses to memorialize him. You know, that's what they've stuck with, because that's what... He got good feedback for, but it's stop pretending like that's the only shit he was doing that year. Part of it was peace stuff, but then there was a lot of this film stuff too. And the books don't even go into the, the films at all. And yet we have evidence here that it was important to John. Like it wasn't a lark. It was something that he really wanted to succeed in. Right. That's the most important part is this was actually part of his image and, you know, his dream for how he wanted to differentiate himself, his fantasy of what he wanted to be. And so if his vision was that he was going to be morphing into something that he thought was, quote unquote, more than being a famous, successful musician, and he's being ridiculed, I mean, that would have... Big implications like that would be really hurtful instead of it just being a lark, which is which is how it's treated. If John actually really cares about this and thinks that that's his future and he's getting like either ignored or told he's crazy, then it would be really frustrating because then he's back like, well, I guess the band is still my future. And fuck, I I don't want to compete in that box anymore. I already thought of a new way of competing. But then there was also... The peace box. That the peace activist stuff has nothing to do with art, other than like you know. Well, it the, doesn't. The, 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 there's like the bed in, and then there's a um, you know, the poster campaign, which is that's let's say that's artistic, okay, but it's not really art. What mostly what they're doing is they're just campaigning for peace. Again, not art, that's campaigning. And it is the one area where they are not being judged because they are literally not being judged. They are not creating any content upon which to be judged. Like they're literally just talking about peace and they're getting, you know, feedback because they're talking to people who share concern and interest in a cause that they're talking about. So that is not the same as an artistic triumph. Collaboration. Which is which is how which is how the books write about it. And here's the thing is that all of these books 
that purport to be about history and shit like that. They are written with the hindsight of people who are like, well, we all know that John went on to be a fantastic artist because I like his two albums that he does next. So this is all just a means to an end. So, oh yeah, he had this, you know, this great commercial and critical failing that would have really, really hurt him and would have really given him a, a real dip in his confidence and his self-esteem, but we're pretending like we don't even acknowledge that because we've already decided how the story is going to go. So, so we're ignoring that. And we're like, for God's sake, will somebody do some fucking real work and go back and actually pay attention to what's happening here so we can actually see the story clearly. He succeeds with music. That's a culmination from exploring and expanding as an artist. Like maybe that is the culmination of everything he did. You know, all artists have to try new things to grow. And that's what I think this is good for this year, is he's trying and he's getting new stimulus and he's getting new feedback. Like just that would be stimulating. So cool, great that he did that. But Paul also was doing that and he's never given the same artistic credit for just like, for example, with Magical Mystery Tour. Right, and John doesn't deserve any reverence that the other Beatles don't deserve. Exactly. John is lauded and given credit for being like experimental and out there and so avant-garde. Okay, but sometimes it wasn't. Sometimes it was just an Andy Warhol ripoff movie that everybody had already seen and was a little embarrassing how derivative it was. Like that right, happened. Right, right, right. And I think the other thing is is some of it is so transparently provocative and attention-getting. Right. You so know. it would just be nice if there was some balance, please. Like This was them having fun, being creative, trying some stuff. Sometimes it's crazy. And a lot of the time it was just to get attention for Brand John and Yoko. But it's not like um, <laughs> everything he did was a deeply meaningful artistic statement. Right. Exactly. But to address the idea that John needed to be more than a world famous musician. Uh, Because I think it's important to the story and especially relevant to this Mm -hmm. period. Um, I mean, obviously, part of the reason John wanted to be more was because he was a brilliant artist, you know, a multifaceted artist with all kinds of talents and ambitions in other areas that, you know, I'm sure excited him. However, I think part of John's driving motivation to distinguish himself and shine, like in, in a new way, was also his insane rivalry with Paul McCartney. You know, I think, I think John had to find a way to outdo him. Like as long as Paul was setting the agenda and they were playing by traditional rules, John probably felt like he just couldn't win, you know? Right. It's become kind of an unlevel playing field in that respect, because, you know, Paul is the Mozart at this point and going forward for the rest of their careers, you know, Paul sells more records. His songs are more popular. He gets covered more often. It has a wider appeal, you know. Um, he's He wins the Ivor Novello Awards, you know. Mm-hmm. His, exactly. his, his songs are the ones that get played on the violin in the yeah. restaurant and whatever. Yeah. He I just, mean, John can't compete on that level. Exactly. So it makes sense that he's, he's going to say, well, I opt out of that. Then. That's right. I mean, it must have been exhausting to compete against Paul. 
And that's that's not to say John isn't as good. It's just, again, like, you know, Paul does well on all this criteria. And John actually did articulate this in a number of ways over the years. Like, it was just frustrating. It was exhausting. And even we just covered the 4442 meeting earlier in the month when John was complaining to Paul that, you know, he never let up. He never gave in. And it exhausted John, and he just didn't want to fight about it. Like, you know, Paul never backed down and just said, okay, you know what? I've shot enough. Here's, you know, (laughs) here's the stage. He never seeded it. So, you know, obviously, I think the desire to reinvent is partly just John's personality. Like, he always seemed to be jumping to the, the next thing, you know, but also partly because he's an incredibly formidable competitor. Part of him was like, I don't want to fight. And part of him is like, no, I'm going to fight. And he decided that he just didn't want to play by those rules. So he just changed the game, you know? Yeah, it's pretty brilliant. If those two are playing chess, then like, that's a good end run. You know, I just made a football analogy, but you know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> but that's basically what, what John did. He yeah, just exactly. changed the game. Now we're playing football. <laughs> exactly. And you don't even know it. I think he had this vision for who he was going to be, which was tied to how he saw himself. And Yoko was critically important to this new identity. You know, like when they met, he must have, you know, part of, I think, what really excited him about her, you know, there's many things, but part of it must have been like, wow you know, we can do this other stuff together. And she's kind of his entree into this new world and this new identity. Yeah, exactly. He kind of um, raided her toolbox. Yeah. yeah. Um, And it was smart because, you know, if Paul's so busy writing the soundtrack to the century or whatever. Yeah, 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 exactly. Then, you know, John's expressing himself in all these other different ways that makes him unique and sort of, you know, distinguishes him you know, if the Beatles are thought of as a, a good music-making group that writes beautiful music and whatever, John being something else besides kind of makes him the special one. That's right. I think he believed with her he could compete and win against Paul in a new way, you know? And actually, right. like, there's a lot of people that say that John and Yoko became the most famous people in the world with the peace movement. So it worked, you know, and and yep. Yoko's on record. She's talking about the fact that now that John has me, he has more power within the Beatles, you know, so it was working on many fronts. So, you know, so he started to promote the strengths that he has with Yoko. Right, exactly. And he starts to weaponize Paul's strengths against him. Yeah. How did he manage to do that? How did he t- how did he turn Mozart into a bad thing? He's like, all of your success is a bad thing because it means you're commercial. That's right. That's and right. your beautiful your beautiful melodies that sell sheet music and that live infinitely in the universe. That's right. And that he, means it's music. Yeah, exactly. And he turned what? Paul's good looks into you know proof that he's vapid yes that he's he's vapid <laughs> and shallow john really did a great job of weaponizing paul's paul's strengths against him and if he's doing all this you know he's got this plan to you know find a new way to win and he, he was doing an incredible job yeah not to take away from his own 
musicianship or songwriting ability or, or, or singing. You know, I mean, George Martin said that John was always insecure about his voice and he always wanted George Martin to find ways to distort it or filter it because he didn't like the sound of his own voice. That's right. And Tony Sheridan also said that John didn't consider himself as good a singer as, right. as Paul. And, well, I mean, technically he's not. He doesn't have the range that Paul has. But in, in terms of taste, like a lot of people prefer John's voice. That's so, right. Well, I mean, he has nothing to be insecure about. I mean, and, and you don't have to be a better singer than Paul McCartney. You don't have to be the best. You just have to be different. Well, exactly. And I mean, this, we're not bringing this up because we think that one's better than the other. This is support for the fact that John felt like he wasn't as good on some of these measures. So had to find a new way to compete. And and that's why, you know, some of the stuff that we're just talking about, like the, the avant-garde stuff that he's doing when he's getting pushback or, and they're not getting accepted. Like he probably thought with Yoko's entree that they would be celebrated, but if they're getting pushback, that would have been very frustrating because it's more meaningful yeah. than authors have um, assumed. You right. Know? Because it's, it's this alternative route that he's embarked on where he's going to show Paul up finally. And I, I know that, you know, some people might push back on what we're suggesting that, you know, that he's doing this partly to, you know, compete with Paul. I think the story doesn't really take that into account. It's like John just had lost interest. And of course, like, what does Paul have to do with any of this? But I think there's so much evidence throughout the 70s that John continues and Paul to compete with each other and and think that they're really the only people that are at this level. So to think that he's not doing this partly to rival Paul, to me, is crazy, right? Absolutely, it's crazy. John measures himself against Paul for the rest of his life, everything he does, if you believe what he says, then his his opinion of himself is so elevated and inflated that he considers everything he does to be better than everything Paul's doing. Um, whether or not that's true, <laughs> um, it is the yardstick by which he measures his own work. There's no reason for the rest of his life for him to be comparing himself against Paul in a way that demeans Paul and and exalts himself. There's no reason to do that unless you're being competitive. Right. Well, you know, we were just talking about there's a a quote from Seaman, right? Fred said in 1980 that, quote, John told me that Paul was the only musician who could scare him into writing great songs and vice versa. So again, it's not, it's not even just that Paul is the only musician who can scare me into writing great songs, which is a hell of a statement in and of itself. But the fact that John says, and vice versa, means that he either really believes or really wants to believe that they're still in this together and that it's mutual. That's right. On the surface, this is kind of you know, a harmless little statement, but there's a lot packed in because this is 1980. The one person that he's competing with is Paul. You know, they're still in this infinite game with each other. It it is amazing. And and so I think what that suggests is that they are always on some level, the main audience for each other until John dies. Who are they trying to impress in the world? Like, I'm sure they like the accolades. I'm sure they like to sell records, but you know, I'm sure that each other's opinion and approval yeah. on both sides matters more than anything yes. else. And of course, they're they're both artists, so they do you know they do it for their own reasons. Well, that's of, right. Or, beyond that, know. beyond beyond yeah, the joy yeah. of making art, and and it remains like this for the rest of their life. So in 1969, it's going to be even 
more heightened. I think John is doing this partly because he just needs to, partly because he's got Yoko in his life and that's exciting. But partly this is not just so he can go off on his own. We both believe this, that he's doing this partly to strengthen his position so that he is an equal and formidable competitor and rival to Paul for leadership of the Beatles. Yeah, either leader of the Beatles or leader of the Beatles at some time in the future. That's right. This is Tony Sheridan. I guess he realized somewhere along the way, well, I've got to do something other than just be a rock and roll musician if I want to impress the whole world. He never saw himself as a very good singer, for instance. No, he never saw himself as comparable to Paul McCartney even. Which, you know, he was playing with a guy, writing songs with a guy whom he thought was better than he was in many ways. So I think, well, uh, he had this immense ego and this immense sort of, uh, it's like a motor in in him that had to sort of go go to new lengths and reach new heights in, in order to impress somebody or the whole world or whatever. This is a couple days later. John and Yoko do a bunch of interviews for various publications. And so they talk on a a range of subjects. What we notice is that, um, you know, John is on a tear here. He's complaining about the lack of reception to his films. He talks about money, saying that the Beatles' fortune was a myth. And he said that Apple treated him and Ono as second-class citizens. And that he hadn't had a paycheck in two to three years since all the Beatles' joint income went into Apple. Which is true. You know, that that is something that they set up in 1967, which ends up being a huge problem for them. But um, the point that he makes about Apple treating him and Ono as second-class citizens is a theme that is also repeated by John. Yeah. In fact, he goes on a, on a tear about it in London Remembers, saying like, they don't even know that we know, but we know that the Apple staff was always, you know, saying shit behind our backs and they were disrespectful to us. And why does he think this? Like, is he just paranoid? The Apple staff probably didn't like to have to do work. So there, there is probably that element. And Yoko was by all accounts, quite demanding, you know, Don too, I'm sure. On one hand, Um, people did complain that Yoko would sort of walk around, you know, like a princess and sort of speak to people like servants. And people apparently don't like to be talked to like that. (laughs) But on the other hand, she is, you know, the boss's wife, basically. So they kind of do have to tend to her needs and wants. But the because of the way that the whole Apple thing was structured, it was to fight the system and the hierarchy and the patriarchy and all that bullshit. I mean, all the all those terrible things. <laughs> <laughs> like the point of it is, is that the, you know we don't believe in bosses, man, and like everybody's there, like tripping balls during the nine to five workday and stuff like that. So right. he's probably right. Like they probably were not treated with with the best respect, but the same is probably could be said about all the Beatles. Well, that's the thing. You know, I think that they were disrespectful to probably all of the Beatles. You know, they, it's a bunch of hippies and like cool people that are hanging out and their buddies that are working there. And so that's John's impression. But what might be compounding John's impression is that some of the media and some of the people around them were quite racist 
So this idea that they're second-class citizens, I think this would have been seeded uh, in John's mind from a number of sources, you know, and I think it would have impacted his overall feeling of paranoia and the fact that they are under attack. So that I understand. And, and, we don't want to undermine or make light of that. Right. John's not specific here when he, you know, makes the second class citizen claim, but he later said, and Lennon remembers that Yoko faced woman bias and Japanese bias. And both things are likely true just because that is the way that the world is, unfortunately. And anti-Japanese sentiment was real in Britain at the time. Like it, World War II was recent history. But I also know at the bed in that Yoko said that she would have kept the peace of World War II by being Hitler's girlfriend, which is like a little bit fucking insensitive to the six million Jews who were exterminated in the Holocaust like five minutes ago, historically speaking. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, could you read the actual quote? Absolutely. Absolutely. Tell me how you would stop Hitler, Andy Cap demanded. This is when they were debating him in the bed end. Yoko replied, if I was a Jewish girl in Hitler's day, I would approach him and become his girlfriend. After 10 days in bed, he would come to my way of thinking. <laughs> the world needs communication, and making love is a great way of communicating. But that wouldn't fly today. <laughs> Yeah, you can't talk about making love to Hitler now. I mean, there's two things that is bonkers about that, that that Yoko actually is either A, joking about Hitler or not joking about Hitler. (laughs) Right, right. So both of those situations are crazy. And the crazier thing is that John is like, no, I don't see anything wrong with that statement. John and Yoko were doing deliberately provocative things in people's faces the fact that she's Japanese and a woman probably would have made her a larger target. But that's not the only reason. Yeah, right, right, right. She's not helping herself. She's not helping herself. Some of their ideas are kooky, but they're trying. They're they're fighting for peace. And I think they they think that, you know, they're in the right there. But I think that the more important thing is that um, it just speaks to the fact that he feels like they're not getting respect, you know? Well, I think so, too. I think that's kind of just the stew he's soaking in right now. That's right. In another interview given on this day, John, quote, revealed that his only real friends were the Beatles, employees including Neil Aspinall, Derek Taylor, and Peter Brown, and members of Ono's art circles. The weird thing, too, is that in that Lennon Remembers rant, when he's talking about the Apple staff, he specifically calls out Neil, Derek, and Peter Brown. Like, literally those three guys, those same three guys. Fuck all of them. They're all dead to me. (laughs) Those are the same people that he's ranting about. The Beatles, Neil, (laughs) Derek, and Peter. (laughs) His only real friends. His only real friends. Right. But one of the things that we can, you know, why we're going over all this information is to see exactly what John is saying at the time. Because what he says after the fact can be useful, but it's not necessarily 100% reliable because anything that John and Paul say after the fact is going to be a little bit, you know, gone through the spin cycle a little bit before it comes out, right? They're going to be doing damage control for the rest of their lives. So we're trying to get in the moment here and 
track what's actually going on at the time. And so we know, for example, that John is complaining about his income. He's complaining about money problems, Mm -hmm. the Beatles joint income going into Apple and that he can't get it out. We know that he has just put in a lot of money into Tittenhurst. He's got some financial um, strain on him at this point. This is the benefit of going day by day and looking at really what happened here rather than just making assumptions about how these people feel. And so, you know, on this day, on the 12th of September, he's saying, you know, if I wanted to make a record, I choose the Beatles, you know, session people are fine, but you know what? They're not the Beatles. He's saying that the Beatles are his best friends. Um, so, you know, he's clearly has still a connection. His complaint is, as you said, about not getting the accolades and the respect for his and Yoko's projects. The Apple staff is not, you know, treating them with respect and, I think he feels frustrated by not having control over his money. You know? Yeah. You know, those are all legit complaints. Um, what John doesn't mention here are the two biggest battles of his life at the moment, which are the management issue. Yep. Klein versus the Eastman's mm-hmm. and also the leadership of the Beatles. Yeah. Which are both huge and both of which involve Paul. But, you know, right. more importantly, pit John against Paul, and which he has so far been unable to resolve. Right. And he wants to win. So he needs power. Yeah, to, to bolster his position and fight for the things that he wants. Respect, the leadership position, and Klein. This happens to be the same day that John gets a call, apparently quite late at night, that they were just hanging out at the offices at Apple on a Friday night late. Um, Being disrespected. (laughs) (laughs) Brooding about his disrespect. Um, That's true. And, you know, I think it was actually quite fortuitous that he got a call then from um, live music promoter, I guess by the name of John Brower called John and invited him and Yoko Ono to the Toronto Rock and Roll Revival Festival, which was taking place the next day. I guess the invitation was really just for them to attend and preside as, you know, as you said, that it it was kind of a mark of respect that that these guys reached out and said, would you come? And like, they were really just looking for their presence. Yeah, I'm assuming... To, like, announce the Max. Exactly. And he just probably felt like it would add an element of prestige to the yeah. event if John and Yoko yeah, were there. Yeah, it's like the next generation. Because the Beatles were the great, you know, celebrators of rock and roll, right? As we all know and love. They brought back American rock and roll. Right. but, but the- Revived it, if you will. <laughs> exactly. So this is the next revival. You know, I think the fact that John doesn't even hear the invitation says a lot about his mindset, right? Sometimes when you make a mistake like that, you hear what you want to hear, you know? Oh yeah. And he's, and he's probably like so thirsty to redeem himself. He's like two steps ahead of the guy 
when he gets the call, right? Right. Like this guy's like, so we're having a festival. He's like, yes, I'll be there. (laughs) That's exactly. (laughs) Hold on, I'm getting my band. Exactly right. And so he does overnight, and he says that he had to give some thought to who he could get to come and play with him. And it, and it happened super quickly and they left the next morning. So this was an extremely spontaneous thing. And the fact that John was willing to jump on it and basically just go reflects how primed he was to, like you yeah. said, to redeem himself, to prove himself, to, you know, there's an element of like, fuck that. We're going to go show them, you know, I'm going to be there. Totally. Absolutely. And like, if he is feeling sort of (laughs) embarrassed by this movie and like kind of bummed out that he didn't get the reaction that he wanted and and like defensive, like he was about the critics. If somebody calls and is reaching out to him respectfully. Yes, very respectfully. Then then it's fairly, you know, predictable that he's going to be like, fuck yeah, that's what I want to hear. The rock and roll community at least still shows me some fucking respect. This is what I do. I can do some some old school rock and roll covers. Yeah. That's my yeah. that's my comfort zone. Yeah. I can do that. You know, all these authors that talk about like John could barely do Abbey Road because he was so into avant-garde. <laughs> right, right, it's right. like John jumps on the chance to go to a rock and roll revival concert. I mean, this is and then he says that constantly. He's just like, I just like rock and roll. It's like, okay, are you avant-garde or rock and roll, dude? Because they're not the same thing, you know? Oh, yeah. He, like, rhapsodizes in Lennon Remembers. He goes off on a whole thing about how I just like old rock and roll. <laughs> I'm like our parents, you know? I just like the stuff I grew up with, and I'm old-fashioned like that. So this gave John um, a really great opportunity, and, you know, he was clearly excited about it and moved on it, you know? He, he's just tried his hand at a few things he wasn't that aren't in his wheelhouse and that he wasn't really comfortable with and they kind of blew up in his face okay the films weren't his wheelhouse but the cold turkey was and certainly talking about the future of the beatles and proposing a new record were his wheelhouse and so That's he's getting disrespected on many fronts and i think that this is building up in him um well, but let's but let's parse that out a little bit because I think it's it's anger at Paul more than it's not anger at George, right? Because he invites George. No, well, that's that's an interesting point. Is the first person he tur- turns to, or you know, when he's thinking about putting this group together, he apparently does ask George to join him. And so why why do we think that he asked George? Because we know John hasn't been showing up for George's songs, and there's no indication that he wants to share the billing with George. Well, I mean, his best friends, as he stated earlier in the day, are George, (laughs) Paul, and Ringo. And he's obviously not asking Paul. But why does he ask George and not Paul? Well, okay, so I say he is obviously not asking Paul, but but let's talk about why he obviously is not going to ask Paul. Like, for one thing, if Paul Paul and John go on stage together, then it's the Beatles. And also... Paul is not going to play second fiddle to John. It's not going to be the John Lennon show with a special appearance by Paul McCartney. Right. Well, so George rejects the invitation. I think basically saying that he's not interested in performing with a plastic ono band. You know, when he invites George to come, George is going to be his guitarist, which is a weird position for George to be in. Like, yes, it's kind of cool if he can just go and support John, but they are actually in a band together, and George is a Beatle. Right. George is the guitarist for the Beatles, not for John Lennon. 
And in this circumstance, I assume he would be he would be the guitarist for the Plasticono band. And so that's a really weird, like it's a, I think it was very smart of George just to say, no, I'm not doing that. Of course he ends up doing it, you know, months later anyways. So, but I understand well, why he wouldn't, George wouldn't have wanted to gone. Well, here's what George says. He says, John asked me to be in the band, but I didn't do it. I didn't really want to be in an avant-garde band. And I knew that was what it was going to be. I, I do think it absolutely involves Yoko because I think that's part of George's issue that all this year is like, hell no, I'm writing great songs. I am not taking a back seat. You guys go and do your stuff that don't include me in that. I mean, you know, he could, he could have just been a good friend and said, sure. Yeah, I'll do that. But, but he's, he's in an awkward position, but Yes, I agree. And also maybe he's trying to be, he's like, hey, George, you get the right of first refusal. Yeah, well, I mean, if that's the case, that's respectful. But we don't know about him asking Ringo or Paul. We know that Ringo's not around for the 444 meeting. Yeah, he's out of pocket for some reason. But it's interesting that he does not reach out to Paul. No. (laughs) No. No, I think the point is to do it without Paul. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. If John's like, I'm going to quit the Beatles, and then he, like, five minutes later calls George and is like, hey, George, exactly. can, you exactly. come, can you come play on stage with me? Then, you know, what does that, what does that convey? Like, what, what, what do we take away from that? Right. Either John had not decided that he was leaving the Beatles because the first thing he does is turn around and ask a Call Beatle a to Beatle, come join yeah. him, or else... To him, having George there is not necessarily about it being Beatles. That is kind of disrespectful to George because it assumes that George is willing to just back him up and that George doesn't come on with his own Beatles star power, you know? Well, exactly. Kind of the implication is just like, um, I don't want to play with the Beatles anymore. Well, not you, George. I mean, the real Beatles. I mean, you know. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> but with the Beatles that matter. But And the other thing is, is that like we say, obviously not Paul, because this is something that John wants to do on his own. But there's no way in hell he's inviting Paul, because if Paul is there, then all of a sudden it's going to be about them. And then it's the Beatles. Yes. So again, it's it's disrespectful because there's a baked in assumption that John can shine just fine if George is there. But if Paul's there, he can't. And and let's not mince words <laughs> when you say he wants to do it on his own. By on his own, we mean not with Paul McCartney because bitch ain't on his own. He's got his wife. He's That's got right. Eric Clapton. You yeah. know, it's asking George Harrison, another guy from the Beatles, to be there with him. So, I mean, <laughs> he's doing this on his own. The only other person that he's truly, you know, he says this for years, is that me and Paul were the Beatles. So, of course, he thinks that. Of course, he thinks yeah. that. And George, John, and and Ringo play together in 1970, <laughs> and it ain't right. the Beatles. It is not the Beatles. <laughs> That's the thing. Is that for John, the Beatles? Do not exist if Paul is not in it. Yes, he's a, if if he's emancipating, it's from Paul. It's it's not. Nice. Yes, that's he's, that's right. He is stepping out of Paul's shadow, you know, and he he no longer wants to share that spotlight. And it just goes to show that even though George is, you know, delivering spectacular songs that they all respect at this point, 
John is not threatened by George. Right. You know. and, and yes, exactly. That's it's it's no disrespect to George as an as an artist at all. I mean, for yeah. that for that matter, Eric Clapton has a decent yeah. amount of material by that point, but he's also not important to this story. <laughs> <laughs> So anyways, they um, end up inviting um, Eric Clapton, and uh, they reach out to Klaus. So they got Klaus Vorman, Eric Clapton, and Alan White. Yeah. You know, I've seen people talk about this trip as sort of explaining John's change of heart in terms of quitting the Beatles. Like, that he had had a success, and so on his way back, on a high, he decides that he wants to quit. But actually, I think the timing is really interesting in that it's on the way there that he confides to Clapton that he is quitting the Beatles. Right? So that's a very different issue. Like, he has not had a success yet. He's on the way there talking about quitting the Beatles, which to me suggests a very different motivation. Or a different thing that's driving this, anyways. So what? So what are you suggesting is driving him to quit the Beatles on his way to Toronto? Well, to me, it seems reactive and emotionally charged rather than calculated. All the issues that we just talked about—the feeling unseen, unappreciated—again, he has essentially tried a number of things to change the situation. He's brought in Klein. He's brought in Yoko. He's been proposing a song, Cold Turkey. He has suggested a new format for the Beatles. And as much as people like to talk about Paul desperately wanting to hold on to the the Beatles, Paul's not giving an inch on any of this stuff. Mm -mm. Nope, he is not. So those are the issues that are still simmering underneath. And so I think that John is desperate for some control. And I think he may just be at his wits end at this point or else maybe he got this call and was excited. And then was like, fuck, you know, I'd like to go, but you know, Paul's off with his new kid. George is who knows where Ringo's away. Like I want to do this. And none of my band is here to like, where is everybody? Yeah. He might just think, fuck it. There is no Beatles anymore. So Instead of like, I'm going to destroy the Beatles, I'm going to leave the Beatles. Like John and Paul have both made comments over time about yeah. they knew things were tenuous. They knew the band was falling apart. You know, it's not really a secret. Um, well, yeah. And John has said this, too. It's not just Paul. John has said that everybody was doing their own thing. And, you know, after Paul's album came out, he said that Paul had been practicing this for years. So I, I think it's a mistake to assume that John's not insecure, that everybody else may be doing their own thing. Like we look at it now and we we know Paul's perspective that he didn't want it to, to break up. But, you know, Paul's just written the end, had a family and is inflexible about bending to John's suggestion. So maybe, maybe John's just frustrated. Like, you know, there's not even a band around here. Fuck it. We'll do it ourselves. I don't need them. Like I, I get the argument that... Well, Paul wanted the Beatles to stay together, but the idea that John Lennon isn't still insecure about Paul leaving first is crazy to me. Right. Like, of course, of course he's insecure about that. Right. Barry Miles has said that John was always so afraid of being rejected. So if he senses that everybody is not committed, 
you know, John's going to move first. The Beatles are not at a consensus point right now. The Beatles don't have anything on the calendar. They don't have any projects that they're, you know, looking forward to. Right. The last meeting was a big flop that went nowhere. Well, And they're just kind of like dangling. This is the real danger zone for them. There is an assumption that Paul is 100% in and John knows this and is totally confident, you know, and John is the only one that is feeling constrained and wants to leave. And it may not be that situation because we know that John has just said they're his best friends. We know that John has proposed a way forward, that he has wanted to do his song. So it could be that his choice would be to do things with the Beatles, but he feels like there's no commitment. And also, I don't think John Lennon is ever 100% confident in terms of other people who'll be able to withdraw their love and support from him. So that's one scenario that he could be like, fuck it, I'm quitting because there's no band here. You know, if everybody else is sort of eking out their new existence, I am not going to be the one that's left. I will leave first. Yes. I don't know why this idea of posturing and saving face does not occur to anybody in this world. Because certainly it's a thing that really proud people with big egos tend to do. To your point about him posturing, after Paul quits the Beatles, why doesn't John come out and say, listen, we were all perfectly willing to continue the Beatles. Um, Paul is the one who wouldn't allow George Harrison and I equal space on the albums because he's such an egomaniac. And Paul McCartney's only wanted to continue the Beatles if he could have 50% of the album and hog up all the space. I guess he's going to leave the Beatles because he doesn't get 50% of the album space. So in other words, you're saying that he has a way of absolving himself and making Paul look really bad. Absolutely he does. Like John could have told that story and been the good guy, but it was more important to him that he seemed like he was not left he specifically calls up the paper to say, Paul didn't leave. I sacked him. That's I right. left. That's, I left, not him. That's right. That's his immediate reaction. And if this is John's primary driver is not to look rejected, not to look left, like that is something that he can't handle. handle. There is no end to what he will do to make sure, you know, there is a new version yes. that supports that that story. And this is not to make John or Paul look badly because it it looks like neither of them actually wanted to destroy the band, really and truly. You know, I follow Esther Perel, the relationship guide, and she said that people never fight over the thing that you, you think you're fighting over. For example, if you think that somebody doesn't care about you, That's going to permeate everything, like how I see everything. That's the issue that's driving my reactivity. And she said that really people fight about three things, which is primarily power and control, trust and closeness, and respect and integrity. And so like all of the stuff that we're talking about here sort of falls into these issues. And we may be talking about quitting or power within the band But really and truly, it comes down to very, very human things. And so that's why we're not making the assumption that when John says that he wants to quit, it means that he's done and over the Beatles, because people do a lot of things for different motivations. And we have a lot to support the fact 
that he was still emotionally engaged with the Beatles and, and continues to be for the rest of his life. Right. And as we stated at the very beginning of this series, we do believe that this is a power play. We do believe it is about power and control, but we also believe that the objectives are not merely to be in control of the Beatles as a business entity or to be in control of money or management decisions. It is also a power play for love and respect. Specifically from each other. There is it for the audience's love? No, we think it's more for each other's respect. And yes, it's always for each other. So John has decided he's going to go to Toronto. He's formed his band. He's called his guys. And then he wakes up the next morning. <laughs> we got this story from McNabb's book, so thank you, Ken McNabb. But um, apparently John woke up in a panic attack and called their assistant, Anthony Fawcett, who had just finished making all the travel arrangements for uh, Klaus and Al and White and Clapton. And was like, I'm not going to <laughs> just uh, call the promoter and apologize and send some flowers. Okay, I'm going back to bed. And Eric Clapton, who was already at the airport waiting to board, got really <laughs> mad because apparently he had some backstory with this promoter. So Clapton calls John and ripped him a new one, according to Anthony Fawcett, if you can imagine that. Fawcett said, knowing their moods, I took a chance, decided not to send the flowers, and asked everyone to stand by at the airport. I rushed over to Tittenhurst, hoping that, with a little encouragement, they would change their minds and go through with the concert. And then apparently, when he got there, John and Yoko were in a better mood. They had eaten their breakfast. John had calmed down a little bit. And Anthony Fawcett managed to coax him back into uh, going on with the with the show. And you know, John acted like nothing ever happened. John woke up and it was like, wait, <laughs> I'm supposed to be in Toronto and I have not performed in years. Yes, like yes. what? Like tonight. What? Yeah. I don't even have a band. It's pretty funny. Yeah, and you know what? The thing is, is it actually, um, it sounds a lot like a similar story in 1972 when John had agreed to do a show at Madison Square Garden with Yoko and the Elephants Memory Band. That's right. After not being on stage for a long time. I mean, right. Um, but that time, who does he call? <laughs> Paul McCartney. Paul McCartney. In 1972, John reaches out to Paul, invites him to come on stage with he and Yoko, but Paul declines because Alan Klein is still involved as John's manager. I know. And that is in 1972. 1972, John invites Paul to come and perform with him. And actually, you know what? That reminds me of the concert for Bangladesh in 1971. I, uh, I was just skimming May Pang's book, and I noticed this, that apparently when George was lining up acts, that both Paul and John wanted to get on stage with, with each other. This is a quote. She says, Paul said he would go on if John did. John said he would go on if Paul did. But then their business problems began to surface and in the end, Paul dropped out and John downgraded to a maybe. And then, of course, he didn't he didn't perform there yeah. and he dropped out eventually as well. So, you know, that's an, another example oh of where they want to be on stage together, but they don't because of conflicts, specifically conflicts business. around business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that is amazing because that is 
August 1971, like a month before John drops Imagine <laughs> with How Do You Sleep? Can you imagine? God. That's so ridiculous. I know. I know. They're they are a mess. They're a mess and they're insane. <laughs> and they and are. oh my god, I wish they had gotten on stage together then because how different would that have played out? Yeah, exactly. That would we'd be looking at the breakup differently. Yep. Exactly. Well, again, we'd be looking at the breakup differently, but these things happened and they're and, not and we really don't, and nobody pays attention exactly. to them. I know. Exactly. They're not widely reported. Like this is twice 1971 and a year later in 1972, both times Paul and John are discussing performing together. So this whole like they couldn't stand each other is such a giant myth. Exactly. That nobody but that nobody wants to dismantle because they like it. It's I mean, it's the foundation of. Leninology. The thing is, is that it's just more complex in that sometimes they hated each other, sometimes they loved each other, but they were never, ever disconnected. Right. And sometimes they were doing both at the same time. Sometimes yeah. they were jonesing to get back on stage with each other and also were <laughs> slamming down the phone. God damn it. I could go. Exactly. Exactly. Forget it. Exactly. Well, I think that whole period was like that. You know, like George Martin says, they never stopped loving each other. And and actually, you know, to be more specific about what he said, I think George Martin said that we all talk about the falling out or the row between John and Paul, but they really did love each other very much. And there was always a great deal of love between them, you know, until the last moment. We talked about the row of John and Paul, but they really loved each other very much. And they stood, you know, even up to the very last moment, that there was a great love between those two men that... that uh, that we, it's very difficult to understand. They, they respected each other in spite of the words that they said in public. He also said that they were always talking, even when they allegedly were not talking. I mean, I think John and Paul were always on speaking terms, even when they were fighting each other. Yeah. Um, they really loved each other very much. Okay, so in 1972, he panics and calls Paul McCartney. But at this point, he wakes up in the morning and goes, holy shit, I'm supposed to perform tonight. And oh, yeah, I decided I was not going to do it with that asshole. And I've got myself a new (laughs) band that I've never played with before. You know what? I got to cancel. I just got to cancel. Maybe he was panicking because there was a lot baked into this decision. Like the night before, he had felt excited and and exhilarated and powerful by this idea that he was going to show up and he was going to quit the Beatles and he was going to be huge like success and it was going to be exciting. And then the next morning he wakes up and he's like, holy shit, and it becomes a reality. And it's stage fright, both in terms of performance and in terms of like, Mm -hmm. I don't know if I'm ready to do this. I don't, you know, it's a big move. So... Like, it, like, basically the consequences of my yes, actions. Like, yes. Like, when he wakes up with a clear head or a clearish head. Yes. And it right. is like, I need to deliver right now. You know, this is when actually it becomes real. And like we said earlier, this recalls the stories from 71 and 72, where when he's faced with the reality of performing on stage, he wants Paul beside him. It's almost a reflex. Yeah. Like, Paul has always been beside him literally every time he's been on stage. And then even in 1974, when John performs with Elton John at Madison Square Garden, he talks about Paul on stage. He calls him as his strange fiancé. And, like, the last time he ever performed, John Lennon was singing a Paul McCartney song. And, and he gave a shout-out to Paul McCartney. Like, as much as John at this point 
is purposely trying to do a performance without Paul, it seems like that's his go-to. I mean, these guys started together. They grew up together. That's all they know. Right. We just gave very concrete, multiple examples of John finding it either painful or scary or both to be on stage without him. I guess the point of talking about that, though, is that like what's natural is for John to reach out to Paul. You know, we saw them on the stage together in January 1969. They're magic when they get on stage. You can see John is looking at Paul constantly and he's super excited. And apparently after that performance, he was excited. So, you know, he likes performing with Paul. And yet we don't have any indication that John reached out to Paul. So I think he didn't because he specifically wanted to perform without Paul, maybe to individuate. He makes this great decision, wakes up the next morning, panics, was like, cancel everything. And that anecdote really shows us that even if John was sure about quitting the band or is is being truthful that that's how he felt, there is a lot of evidence to support the fact that we should not necessarily trust that this is the way that he feels every day. Like, you know, right, he, right, he right. seems to be changing his mind at an alarming pace. And so... I don't know why anybody would trust anything that John is saying in this month. Exactly. Well, and what is all these authors' rationale that, no, 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 he made his mind up before Toronto and he never changed his mind. They all think that. But, like, why? What is the possible rationale? Like, you have testimony from his assistant. His moods swung so far from one end to the other. And then the same assistant, again, just describes John struggling with the decision when he comes back from Toronto. So apparently he wasn't even 100% sure then. Right. So why the fuck do all these authors insist that no, 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 100% John was done? Yeah, yeah. Based on what? Based on confirmation bias. But did you hear how cool he sounded and Lennon remembers <laughs> exactly. when he told that story? Exactly. Why would we doubt him? Well, we're giving you a lot of reasons to doubt that story right now. You missed a bunch of stuff, like that he wanted to be a filmmaker, that he cared, that he was upset, that, you know, the Beatles were still his number one choice to make albums with, that he offered his song to them, that he offered ways forward. Like there's so much evidence that John was trying to work out a way for the Beatles still to work. Anyway, they head to Toronto and we do want to flag that there is a slight debate about when John told the buddies on the plane that he was planning to quit the Beatles. John says it's on the way there, and Womack and Doggett, they claim the same thing. But Ken McNabb and Spitz put it on the way back, although they don't explain why. So take that for, you know, whatever it's worth. But there seems to be more evidence that it was on the way there that John told Eric Clapton and Klaus that he was quitting the Beatles. This is when John himself dates it too. So, you know, we wanted to discuss why has he decided at this point that he's going to quit? So let's, let's explore why John might've discussed the issue with the guys on the plane. Okay. So all the jean jackets have decided that he was a thousand percent decided, completely unwavering, never changed his mind he ripped the Beatles out of his heart, said, bye, losers, and never looked back. And that his panic attack when he wakes up in the morning is merely just a fleeting moment of stage fright. 
we can immediately discount option A because Anthony Fawcett tells us when John returned from Toronto in the little interim of time between returning from Toronto and going into the September 20th meeting, he said, you know, John was struggling with the decision the whole weekend and he watched him do it. There is no debate that John said that he quits at this point and that he quits right. on the 20th. So, you know, like he, right. he is yes. putting it out there. I think what we are debating is whether that was a strategic move or a reactive move versus a deep-seated desire to be done with the Beatles. You know, people do a lot of things for different reasons. And I think that right. the common belief is that John was emotionally finished with the Beatles at yes. this point when he says, I'm done. What we're suggesting is that we believe he said these words, but that does not necessarily mean that he was checked out, that he was finished with the Beatles, or that he actually wanted to end them. Yes, we think that it is much more likely that it was a little more complicated than that. So why would he be telling all the people around him? And by the way, not Paul McCartney, but for some reason he's telling all the people around him. Why is he doing that? Yeah. You know, a lot of people do this. You see it with people with their jobs or with their significant other. When things aren't going well, this is the thing people do. They, they say, I'm going to leave them. I'm going to quit. You know, telling Klaus is like telling a girlfriend that you're going to leave your husband because you're angry with them. You know, it's a, yeah, it's a yeah, very yeah. different scenario. I mean, Klaus, Klaus and Eric, first of all, don't even take it seriously. They're like, whatever. Um, you know, because I think that they rightly look at a guy who's panicked, who's jonesing for heroin and yeah. are just like, yeah, I don't think that this is a well thought through concept. But anyways, you know, just in terms of like, why do people do that? It's usually because there's something about the situation that's making them ha unhappy, but it's usually these kind of fantasies are like about getting even, getting control, having more power in the situation, you know? Yeah. Scaring the other person, threatening the exactly. other person. Then they'll see, yeah. then they'll appreciate me. I'm going to be seen out with somebody else. That's right. Let that get back to Oh, me. and you know mm. what? That had to be sexy to John. To be like, oh, I am flying to Toronto. I, I found a new band. They're cool guys. That's going to get back to them. Did I need them? Fuck no. Do I pay Paul McCartney the courtesy of calling him and talking to him about this? Fuck that. Nope, no, because I do not that, need to. And he's doing something like hugely in the public without a heads up to Paul. It's disrespectful. And so the fact that it's disrespectful <laughs> suggests that it's supposed to be disrespectful. Right, exactly. <laughs> so let's imagine that on September 13th, Paul gets a call at Apple offices and he hangs up the phone, calls, you know, Donovan. Jimi Hendrix. And, and just flies off and does a concert the next day without letting John know. How do you think that would go? Yeah, how, how would that play with authors, with John, with the rest of the band? They would all be like, egomaniac, fucking we knew it. He just thinks he's the star. Whenever we play out the, these thought experiments, immediately you go to 
Paul's reacting to something. He's being a baby or else he's an egomaniac. Right. You know? Yeah, exactly. So why is John telling uh, these hired hands? Well, it could be it's an insurance plan. You know, it's a, he's on record. You know, if you're worried about something, you start to put stuff out there. Deceit it. Yep. Yep. I mean, it's it's pretty smart. If this guy's main motivation is to not be embarrassed, like to avoid the humiliation of being publicly rejected. That is like his the biggest motivator in his whole life. Go check out like his early songs. It is a theme that he hits a lot. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. So even though, you know, Jean Jackets and authors have looked back on this period as John being totally in control, we're just suggesting that maybe he doesn't know what Paul's thinking. Paul is producing albums. He's learning how to be a producer. He's got his own management. He's not agreeing to anything I'm proposing. He doesn't want to do my song. He wrote the end. Like maybe this jackass is about to take off and thinks he's the world's biggest star. (laughs) <laughs> right, right, right. And I'll be goddamned if I'm the one sitting here looking like he left me and I'm sitting here with my dick in my hand going, well, why don't we make a Christmas single? <laughs> We're saying two things that, that John's all over the place in terms of changing his mind, having mood swings. And so first of all, anything he says should be taken with a large grain of salt. Again, we don't debate that he said these things, what we are really disputing is how much he meant them. And I think that that is the major flaw in this whole analysis. We're saying that there could be other things at play here and that, you know, we can read into some of the things that may be going on. We've just documented the fact that he's feeling disrespected on a number of fronts. So this is maybe the best way of him gaining control, feeling powerful, feeling ahead of the curve in case anything happens. Yep. I mean, somebody either has to be like really, really, really on a mission or just just flat out nuts, just like a complete megalomaniac. Well, you know what I well, mean? Like, probably bo- a little bit of both. And so anyways, they fly to Toronto. And, you know, off the cuff, we, we were full of junk too. You know, we have this piece of information from John that he was on heroin um, during the concert, you know, that he was throwing up his own junk. And, you know, we've had a little bit of feedback uh, about the John quote because the way John talks about it, it's convoluted. When was the last time you found out? He came to our house with George and when I'd written Cold Turkey and and his wife. Yeah. And we we were just I was just trying to get him to record, he'd get put him on piano for Cold Turkey to make a, a a rough take, but his wife was pregnant or something, and you know she didn't and she they left you know, but he's calmed down a lot now you know than what he was. We, I just remember we were both in chase and both on fucking junk and all these freaks on us and Ginsburg and all those people. I was nervous in London when he came you know. He seems to be talking about himself being on junk and Dylan was on junk years earlier. So, yeah, well, he says we were both on junk and both in shades. And I mean, who who the hell knows with John? It's so convoluted. He could mean that he and Yoko were both on junk when Dylan showed up in 69. 
he could mean, you know, he and Dylan were both on junk in 69, although from the feedback we've gotten, apparently Dylan was clean at that point. So, Right. Um, and we do know that John was not on heroin, as far as we know, in 66. So that, 66. Doesn't, that doesn't work for John being on heroin in 66. <laughs> right. So basically trying to fact check this, um, <laughs> it didn't really come out right. Well, but. yeah. I mean, and, and other authors like Womack and Norman and Dalgat, they I think they use that quote and they apply it to the same time that we did early September. So the takeaway is that we we don't necessarily know if that information is true about Dylan. And from what we know, it's not that he was clean. At the time, right. So, so, so Mr. Sorry. Dylan, we retract that. <laughs> <laughs> we retract that. We think that John is probably talking about himself, but even if John is not, was not back on heroin by the first, we do know that he's back on it by Toronto. So our point was, is that John was on and off heroin during this period, which would yeah. make him reactive and emotionally unstable. And so it doesn't really matter. Right. It doesn't change our story. Right. But um, just for the sake of um, clearing the air about Dylan, right. well, I'll take that back. Because <laughs> we know there's a lot of big Dylan fans out there and we would not want to um, misrepresent. Yes. And, and we will address it more fully on our Dylan podcast, <laughs> Like We're, a Rolling Stone with Phoebe and Diana. Exactly, where we dismantle all the narrative myths about <laughs> yeah, around, <right>. <laughs> around Dylan. <laughs> So John says that they were on heroin, and then um, Kim Fowley says it was cocaine. That, that that he, you know, basically saw them snorting coke, which you know, who knows? Maybe it was a combo. Yeah, whatever. I mean, that was a common mixture. Uh, you know, if he was a heroin addict at the time, I can see why he'd want both for the the performance. Yes, it could be that Kim Fowley mistook. John and Yoko sniffing something for Coke, or like you said, it could be that he was doing both. But yeah, John says that yeah. he is full of junk. And also, you know, looking at Womack's book and, and actually multiple books. Yeah, Norman, Norman says it too. Yeah, so. yeah. They, they say that, um, that they were bugging a little bit on the way to the concert because both Clapton and Lennon at this point were heroin addicts and they can't. Get a fix on the flight. They're struggling yeah. with bouts of nausea, apparently, on the flight. But it was during this flight that Lennon confided to Clapton that he intended to quit the Beatles. And went so far as to ask if they wanted to join him. Right. And apparently Clapton just did not take John's rambling seriously. You know, he he, he just chalked it up to his nerves or heroin or whatever, so it wasn't after he had a win that he was like, yep, I can do this. You know, if it had been that way, which is, you know, how I've heard it spun. Okay, cool. Well, he did want to leave. He just needed to win, you know, and he got one. And then that gave him the confidence. If you do buy into all these tropes that we talk about, that like the Beatles were constraining to John and he just needed to break free. If you're looking to confirm that story. It's a great support point. Yeah, yes. yeah, totally. But not if you know that he wants to quit on the way there. I guess they managed to do a brief little rehearsal on the flight. Once they got there, John got really nervous. This is a quote from Kim Fowley, who says, John threw up, and then he started to cry. He said, I'm terrified. Imagine if the Beatles were the only band you've ever been in. And it's the first time you were going to step on stage with people who weren't the Beatles. 
So, you know, that gives us the information that John was really nervous. <laughs> he was crying. It shows how connected he is to the Beatles, too. You know, like, it's true. I mean, he's he's been on, on the stage with Paul his whole life. And George. Mm-hmm. He's always surrounded by great singers with Paul and George. And all of a sudden, he doesn't have them there. Here's a concrete example that before his big emancipation from Paul, which all the books frame as a giant victory, he's crying and literally expressing fear of going on stage without the Beatles. That means something. Well, it's a one for the money, two for the show, three to get ready now, go, yeah, go, go. They start with blue switch shoes. They do Dizzy Miss Lizzie, um, Money. Mm-hmm. Your piece of chance, cold turkey. Your blues. Don't worry, Kyoko. Your blues. That's right. That's right. When I see John, I see him through the lens that I think like the Rolling Stone rock god kind of lens, and he looks so fucking cool, like like amazing rock god level cool. You know, he looks tough. He looks intimidating. He's not smiling. He's got that giant beard. You know, he's super stylish and skinny. And and it's kind of like John looks like he's busy doing business, important business around the world. Like I'm meeting the prime ministers. I'm going to the UN. I'm just dropping by to do a favor. You know what I mean? Like, he looks like he's a man on a mission. The John Lennon that Rolling Stone worships, you know, has had a heart on for for like... 50 years. I just think that an important element of the Toronto show, beyond the symbolism of John appearing like with a different band and not with the Beatles, is the imagery it created. The imagery is so iconic in terms of like, this is the John Lennon, the the peace activist, iconic post-Beatles John Lennon. And I even was thinking about contrasting it to John on the Roof in 69, like how he performed with the Beatles on the roof. When he, you know, he's looking at Paul, he's smiling. He looks a little bit more relaxed. He doesn't smile here. He kind of does his little dance, but he doesn't smile. He doesn't look warm. This is the, the incredibly cool John Lennon, but it's like this John Lennon has been drained of all the warmth. Yeah, I agree. I feel like that that John Lennon that we love died. As an image. Be, as an image. As an image. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. And begat this sort of tough talking, no nonsense, you know, yes, yes, like exactly, telling it exactly. like it is. Like, <laughs> give me right. some truth, you right. know. Yeah, I have no time for any of the bullshit. Let me just get on stage, jam quickly with this band that I picked up along the way. This John Lennon with his band, it's like a more serious dude, macho, masculine kind of energy. Well, they don't love each other. They're just, they're just four guys. But the the Beatles also look like they were having fun and that they loved each other. And this was, you know, we were kind of all in on it. Yeah, they were and and they did. (laughs) And to me, they were much more inclusive. I think he's just rejecting the person that he was. And he thinks that the person that he was was soft and stupid and a a fool. And he's coming out harder, more bitter, more cynical, more aggressive. 
<laughs> right. This is the Rolling Stone pinup. And this is the John Lennon of, of Lennon Remembers. This is both important in terms of like a symbolic act, but also in terms of like, you know, just creating an image that's very iconic. This is an excellent case in point where if you view the tape, it's like if we were in court, it'd be like, Your Honor, may I may I please present Exhibit A? Look at this yeah. tape. Does this man look like he loves Paul McCartney? Does he? Does he, Your Honor? <laughs> exactly, of course he exactly. does not. Exactly. It should be like, what? This is the coolest man on earth who does not need anybody <laughs> except true. his wife who is right next to him. Case closed. I got to give him props yes, for, sure. for stepping up oh, he powered and delivering <laughs> and through 99.98% bravado, he delivered. I actually think his voice sounds good. Like he doesn't sound nervous. He sounds good. He sold it. He did. Like through sheer charisma, magnetism, John yeah. delivers. <laughs> and, and so anybody who doesn't think that John is a performer is yeah. crazy. He's the best in the world. It actually took incredible courage to do that. For sure. I mean, our point is like Toronto is a performance. He is a performer the same way that Lennon remembers is a performance. You know, in fact, midway through the interview, he breaks character. He laughs and he's like, I'm really not like this. You know, I'm really very insecure. And I'm just, yes, Yoko is like, (laughs) yes. I'm very good. I really convinced myself. I'm a very nervous person, really. I'm not as big as headed as this tape sounds. You know, no. this is me projecting through the fear. You know. Okay, back at it. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just bluster. Yes, he did jump on a plane. He did step on on a stage. He did perform well. He looks fucking cool. They do a decent job for a band that has never performed together. But we also want to say that don't be fooled by this. The the guy that comes out on stage was not like this 24-7 in the fall of 69. But he's an incredible performer. And kudos to him for doing that. Yes, exactly. That takes the fucking balls of a kamikaze pilot. Like, I will hand that to him. (laughs) It's interesting that, like, your blues is a real fallback for John. Like, he plays it also at the um, Rock and Roll Circus. I will say it's like, it's because it's like two chords and he's like, everybody do a blues in E or whatever. You think that's why he does it? I think that's 90% of why he does it, but I also think the song is important and one of his favorites. Well, I sort of wonder, to me, the fact that he does the song, yeah, A, it's it's easy, it's cool, like especially he's at a rock and roll show and when he's with the yeah. Rolling Stones, kind of appropriate and it's cool, but I wonder if that's a song that he feels like is 100% him. You know, the majority of his songs Paul has some hand in. Whereas he sees that as a real John song. There's something that connects with him about it. But anyway. I mean, no, no, but seriously, to, to, to take this seriously for a second, like if we're really talking about song choice, yep. and is there any significance to him playing your blues? I mean, again, I think it's 90% because it's, it's, uh, it's an easy thing for everybody to learn. But I, I do feel like that song is a little emblematic of John's emotional distancing from either Paul or the Beatles because it was written at that crucial time in Rishikesh when he was suicidal. This is very personal 
I mean, yeah, and that's the time that that he later describes as like his breaking up with Paul or whatever. So, if some of the anguish of that song is directed at Paul, and like the emotional breakup of them on some level, like you know, again, we don't know what the fuck he's talking about because they did not break up. You know what I mean? Like there was no breakup right. on record. Like what are you talking about, John? He didn't leave the Beatles. So he's speaking specifically about Paul. So if John and Paul broke up, then it was something private. It's some it's some emotional thing. It's not a it's not a professional thing because they stayed together. Right. So I, I do actually read a little bit into the fact that he chooses this song. He sees this song as part of him and not part of Paul. There is something symbolic about like the two times he's played outside of the Beatles, he's played it both times. You know, I, I don't want to make everything about Paul. I don't think that like literally every thought that John has is about Paul. Right. So, you know, uh, at the risk of connecting too many dots that aren't there, I'm just saying like, we all know that this performance in Toronto is directly linked to his decision to leave the Beatles or his fantasizing of leaving the Beatles or his shit talking about leaving the Beatles. I mean, that is the environment that he plays this in. So I'm just saying like, it's possible that that song plays into it. Yeah. Even subconsciously, something associated with the song that he made, like, like even subconsciously carrying with him. There's a reason why he holds this close to him. Right. You know, if he was talking on the, on the way over to Toronto saying, I'm, I'm going to, leave the Beatles. And then he got on stage and saying, I want to hold your hand. Like that would be weird. Right. He's not going on stage singing. All you need is love. To your point about like, not everything is about Paul and, you know, in an effort to tell the story we're we're constantly focusing on the relationship between John and Paul. And there are so many other things going on on at this time there are other elements that we could be pulling into our conversation about the breakup that we ignore because we think the most impactful important element in the breakup is the relationship between lennon and mccartney and And the most overlooked and the most overlooked and i think we can be very easily distracted by the million other issues that are surrounding (laughs) them, which is, I think, what happens to a lot of authors, you know, because there's a lot of shiny objects to look, oh, it was this reason, it was this reason, it was this reason. And so I think what we're doing is just single-mindedly focusing on it to the exclusion of some of the others. But all of the things that we're talking about, you know, John choosing a song that is not Lennon-McCartney, John reacting to his partner, his co-leader, in the band who is not listening to him in terms of what he's saying he needs or what he wants to do going forward. These are all really important issues. Like these are real issues in life that almost anybody would have with somebody uh, that's their partner, you know? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely right. And if the shoe was on the other foot and it was Paul going through all of these things, we would absolutely, without any question, literally everybody would be factoring John into every step and breath that Paul makes. I mean, just for the sake of argument, let's just assume that it's mutual. If we look at it that way, what are we going to find out? (laughs) 
the cold turkey performance is really good. Yeah, and he sounds great, um, and so does Yoko. Yeah. I I think they both sound good. That might be my favorite performance of John and Yoko together musically. Yes, like yes, we were talking about the fact that we wish they had done that more often. Where, you know, that one of them had like John has a song and Yoko punctuated it or enhanced it with some of her own yeah contributions. You know, she she really. She really does enhance that performance. I mean, this is a time where her vocals really accentuate, um, bring to mm-hmm. life the idea. You know, like if you, if you if you want to be channeling pain and emotion and strife and you know all the things that you get with some of Yoko's vocals, I mean, it's perfect for this. It also gives it a shot of adrenaline. I think this is the song that John has excitement for at this point. You know, clearly. The recollection that I have of this is that Yoko had to stand in front of John with his lyrics. I can't remember if it was for a piece, give piece of chance or, or cold turkey, but for one of them he could not. It was not give piece of chance because he <laughs> he just makes those up. He, that's true. Oh, he just made them up, and he and that's like one time where he does not actually do a good job. I mean, he he's really phoning it in. He says Teddy Roosevelt like twice. <laughs> John, come on, man. You gotta right. put out a little more effort. You were better when you were 16 making up the words, yeah. Seriously. I mean, there's phoning it in, and then there's just like, I don't know what that. you're doing, but yes. it's, it's not cool. It's not It's not good. I mean, and again, they didn't leave that off the album, which they probably should have, because it's, it's kind of embarrassing. Well, that's the amazing thing about John in this period. He's kind of defiant about i'm putting it all out there warts and all you know oh totally and he's and he's like i took a shit here's a picture of it isn't it great art and people are like um no not really and he's like fuck you you don't understand art my shits are absolutely high art (laughs) he's got such bravado well, I, I agree, but I I still think he could have curated it a little bit. Oh, no, I'm, I'm not saying he shouldn't have. I'm just saying that he sort of gets by yeah. with his sheer, sheer bravado and charisma and being like, fuck that, this is authentic art. And people are like, okay. Personally, for me, I think um, besides Cold Turkey, the best performance is Don't Worry, Kyoko. Mm-hmm. I think that is where the band sounds the best. And Yoko sounds really good. Yep. And the final jam, John John, John Latopa yeah. piece. Um, the first minute of that sounds cool. Yeah, really cool. We, yeah, we listened to it together, and we're like, yeah, okay, this is this is awesome. It sounds like a um, like an atmospheric horror. Movie exactly, or exactly. You'd have that playing in the background. Yeah, it's like it should be playing in, in Midsummer or something. Mm. It's, it's really is really cool, and then it kind of goes on for way too fucking long. It goes on like twelve minutes, and that's when I think the people were booing and walking out. Well, and, and it stuff. gets more aggressive too. You know, it's just like it gets <laughs> yeah, it aggressive. Um, you got to give kudos to to Yoko because. She hasn't performed musically to a big 
concert like this group of people and so she's got a lot of courage showed a lot of courage to get up and do this so unbelievable and and she delivers you know she does a good job so like kudos to yoko to me it's the good and bad of yoko like i so admire her ability to just get real there is some art to what she's doing and like you said when i first hear it i'm like that's awesome like that's amazing and i think a lot of people would have if she would have done it for for a minute yeah that first minute is is good stuff but then it's like i guess there is a point to the 12 minutes of it but i don't know well i we were saying this yesterday it's a little disrespectful to a poor crowd that's there for oldies rock and roll um for her to yeah you know to come out and do this because it's like it's one thing if a crowd has signed up for it and they want to see it and they're open to it it's another just to like totally to, to jump on a stage and take it over which is always my issue with yoko in terms of by connecting with john and then using his platform for her art it doesn't do her any favors because she ends up performing her art to his audience and they're not the same audience and i think she does herself a huge disservice by doing that because she probably thought well when they hear it they're going to think i'm a genius you got to have the right audience for your work yoko said people were surprised when i suddenly started screaming during our concerts but they didn't realize i had vocal training i was completely wrapped up in the music i did not feel any of that hostility even though i'm sure it was there I mean, that's, well, like when I read that statement, I thought that was cute, actually, that she was just said she was so into her music that she didn't notice it. And, and she was kind of like, yeah, 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 they were probably doing, I'm sure they didn't like it. You know, and there's something incredibly admirable about that, like, because how yeah. many artists are able to do that? Like, very few, you know? There's something kind of self-aggrandizing about that too it is this isn't uh people who came to see a yoko ono concert they could they came to see chuck berry and like jerry lee lewis not yoko ono yeah (laughs) this is ken mcnab the only discordant note was struck by mrs lennon herself who began the performance writhing on stage inside a large white bag before emerging to take place on john's left hand side but it was her screeching that reportedly brought some jeers from the audience who, after all, had come for kick-ass rock and roll. (laughs) Thank you, Ken McNabb, for making it real. (laughs) And then Alan White says, We're playing pretty good, considering the circumstances, when suddenly Yoko crawls crawls inside a bag and proceeds to lie down on the stage. That's when it started getting weird. She had a microphone in the bag, and noises were coming out. I thought there might be something wrong with her. I'm looking across at Eric and Klaus, and they're like, keep playing, keep playing. (laughs) I think we both admire how she could enhance and contribute to John's songs and, you know, does her own song incredibly well. But Yoko and John, when they're doing this, there is something slightly aggressive about their approach during this period you know like we're just gonna we're just gonna go too far to the point where people really don't like us anymore and um, yeah and as we you know we got into another discussion about yoko the other day where um i think kind of where john maybe fucked up was 
he was never like, hey, you know, um, Yoko's not to everybody's taste, and I get that. You know, she's out there. She's far out, man. Um, but the people who dig her really dig her. Yeah. I'm into it. You know, she's into it, and you got to respect her as an artist. Yeah. Like, if he had just said that, I'm pretty sure everybody would be like, okay, whatever, sure. But instead, he's like, she is the most genius fucking artist that has ever walked the earth, and anybody who doesn't get her is a fucking moron, <laughs> and you're all fucking racist, and you're misogynist, and you can all fucking eat a dick because you don't know anything about art. It's like, John, chill, man. <laughs> <laughs> Yoko's not for everybody. Right, right, it, right. And he puts people in the position where they, they basically have to say, okay, I agree with that, because to do otherwise is to admit that you're an idiot and don't understand oh yeah you know? yeah exactly it's kind of like being Sorry. shamed into you know <laughs> totally saying you like her where where it's like she i think she had the ability to stand on her own two feet as an artist and she didn't need that bullshit but what she needed to do was just find her own audience you know and not yeah. appropriate johns but anyways it was pretty incredible that um she went on the stage and she did, she did have quite a spectacular performance. And, and the thing is, is that she really does lend John the element of cutting edge, weirdness, eccentricity, you know, like for, in terms of brands, she really does add a lot of that to John's brand. Yoko wanted to be famous. She wanted attention and he gave her that. John always comes off as like, rebellious but he's the mainstream beloved one in this relationship she brings to the table the more eccentric the more out there and um it allows him to be the loved one the beloved one you know what i mean like it, it sort of repositions yeah him she makes john the cute one she's kind of a foil she is a foil for him and they do sort of collapse their identities and sort of have a shared sense of, of ownership of, of Plastic Ono Band and John and Yoko. But um, I just think that she always gives them an out too, is that like, if, if people are critical and she doesn't seem to care, I think she does. She does. She's very sensitive about who yeah, tells yeah. her story and she wants to control the narrative yeah, that's true. But because I think she can always write it off as they don't get me, I think that she is sometimes okay with them not understanding her art totally. Yeah, and in a way, that's kind of the better outlook. You know, like it's kind of the better way to live. Yeah, it's probably healthier as an artist. If you can believe in yourself to that extent and be like, well, screw them. I'm not sure that Yoko actually believes that, but I think sometimes she does. Well, she projects it. She projects it, exactly. Yeah, uh, I don't know what she believes either. but Yeah, well, she's a tough one to really know what Yoko believes. But anyways, the, I think that the emotional supportive role that Yoko plays is sometimes yeah. underrepresented. You know, that they kind of talk about her being an inspiration, which I think she is. Um, yeah. And an influence, which she is. But I think more than anything, what John needs is somebody to be there with him, to be supportive of him, to be holding his hand and telling him he's, he can do it, you know? And this is something that traditionally in the story of the Beatles, they put Linda McCartney yeah, into this right. role. 
Right. And, and Yoko plays as much of a role in terms of doing this for John as Linda does for Paul. Yep. And John says to Barry Miles in September um, that he is better off now because I've got the security of Yoko. That's what's done it. It's like having a mother and everything. Net-net of this concert is that um, it didn't matter if they were, you know, okay, because... John being on stage was an absolute thrill to the audience. John was beloved. They were singing Give Peace a Chance. They responded well to Cold Turkey. The reaction and reception to them was incredible. And so that's, you know, that was a huge win for them. And one of the biggest wins, I think, was how positively the crowd responded to Give Peace a Chance. Yes. Well, here's the thing is, I think it gained steam, actually. Like, as in, it it sort of, it was a single, and it did well then, but then it it was kind of appropriated by the peace movement. But I think John was a little bit surprised by that. And at this concert, they know it. And he says that they do respond well to Cold Turkey, too. To Like, that, to them, is a positive. And so I'm sure that message was loud and clear to John. He got through to John that... A, I mean, his takeaways would have been like, okay, they like my solo stuff. They like Yoko and I when we're doing uh, peace stuff. They were willing to listen to Yoko if I'm there, you know? Like, they may not love her her stuff, but they're willing to accept it, you know, if I'm there with her. So John um, says after the show, he said, the buzz was incredible. He remembered, this is a direct quote, I never felt so good in my life. So, you know, we've just set up the fact that John, in the past couple months, if you look at the photos, John looks fairly miserable. And then he has all of this positive feedback. Yeah. And if that's on the heels of his decision to quit the Beatles, I mean, that would be really good positive reinforcement. Right. Our perspective is that what was driving John to quit was frustration from the way that he saw himself being treated. And then he comes here where they actually give him all those things that he's looking for. You yeah, know? that he's been hungry for, that he feels he's not getting with the Beatles. So, it, I mean, it would definitely make him feel like he's on the right track. Yeah. And it's a it's good support for him that he can do this on his own. Exactly. I think it's important to take into account that John has massive mood swings during this period. You know, that he's going from these real lows when he's feeling really down to these massive highs when he's feeling fantastic. And he's really swinging from one side to the other during this period. Yeah. And when he's up, he's power tripping. That's right. Well, that's the thing. He goes from feeling insecure and vulnerable, in his own words, to the other extreme of power tripping. And that would be really hard (laughs) for other people to deal with. Like, which John are you going to get, right? Right. I mean, this is a guy who very famously said, half the time I feel like I'm a loser and half the time I feel like I'm Jesus Christ. Right. And it seems to be all packed into that month. I mean, I'm I'm pretty sure that like literally every Beatles author is familiar with that quote. But again, no one applies it. How much more eloquent could he be? about his highs and lows. Right. And that's the thing is that when we listen to the 4442 meeting, I mean, John 
does express his insecurities. And it's actually impressive how much he communicates. And you know, what's interesting is that Philip Norman noticed of all people. He does. He does. Actually, we went back and read his, his account of it. I mean, Norman was one of the most destructive forces in the Beatles story, you know, in terms of creating the narrative. However, at least he has revised his position and seems to understand John better later when he writes Mm -hmm. John's uh, biography. And, And this is what this is from. About the 4442 meeting, Norman writes, his tone was more hurt than accusatory. The insecurity and fatalism revealed in this outburst were surprising enough, but John did not stop there, warming to a theme. Though still wounded rather than angry, he accused Paul of always having overshadowed him, not only by writing more songs, but also by inveigling the lion's share of studio time. It was not a row, more like the airing of mutual grievances before a marriage counselor. And then he says that Paul is surprised and not a little hurt himself. Paul conceded that he might have come out stronger on recent albums, but pointed out that often when they went into the studio, John would have only had a couple of songs ready to record. And in the most recent Paul biography, Norman even takes it a step further, just (laughs) saying that, yes, it's a bunch of grievances on John's side, but mostly of his own making because of his own laziness and insecurity. What did he say that it was more hurt than angry? Norman can be surprisingly insightful sometimes. Well, I think after studying John for, you know, 15 years or, you know, however long. But the interesting thing about him is that he evolves, you know. I agree. And he goes beyond the original sort of like surface level Lennon remembers he gets underneath it and and he seems to understand how much hurt there is with John and how much fronting there is with John. Yes. And that that's what's yes. that's what's nice about his take. Duggett right. unfortunately regresses to you know the superhero story. And mm-hmm. unfortunately he's like Paul is all mistakes, you know. Oh pathetic. yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And everybody hates him. He's disgusting. He's childish. Just, I'm not exaggerating. I would just <laughs> challenge the audience to look at the adjectives that he uses constantly to describe each of them. The one thing I would ag- agree with is that in this meeting, John is more hurt than angry. But I think that coming out of this meeting is where a hurt switched into anger. So he goes to Toronto and he has this big win and that must make him feel very powerful, right? Finally. Yeah. Then then he starts the power tripping. Yeah, well, but but I mean, it, it does make sense that he would want to hold on to that feeling, though. You, I mean, that's a good feeling, so you got to chase it. We have one other quote from John that we'd like to share from this period. Um, you know, there's a, there was this teenager named Gail Renard who um, got to know John and Yoko when they were in Montreal. And this is a quote from her. She said, for hours, they would do nothing but interviews about peace. I asked John, what do you do when everyone goes home? He said, tiredness and loneliness, my dear. He was only half joking. He says something similar later on in the the year when asked. He talks about when the press goes home being depressed. And that's consistent with what he says that after the concert, he talked to the press for 24 hours. Like, he gets a buzz from the attention. I think that this is relevant 
in that when John and Yoko are the center of attention, especially positive attention, especially when they're given a platform, they're very up. But when that's taken away, that it's really tiredness and loneliness, like depression. Well, it seems to be the cycle. It seems to be the cycle that they follow all year. There's a reason why he's so self-centered and defensive. And he, he doesn't always make the right decisions. We hope that most of the time he's doing the best he can. But he fucks up a lot, you know, and and unfortunately, like his comfort zone is being mean and and when cruel he, and lashing when he's, out at when people. He's insecure. Yeah. Yeah. That's just a that's just a matter of fact. And we all know it. Stop pretending that we don't know it. We do know it. And that's a weakness. That's not a strength. Yeah. I, I don't think enough sympathy is given to the people that are dealing with John. Yeah. Like it would have been confusing for Paul. He's not a therapist. He's just trying his best. Right. During this period, I I think Paul is confused about John because John has Klein and he has Yoko. And I think that sort of disrupts Paul's ability to get really close to John and really understand what he's going through. So I think part of him understands John, but then part of him is defensive. And so I think he's confused about really what, how John feels about things. I agree. And sometimes John is insecure and weak in expressing that. And sometimes he's on a full blown power trip and he's being a dick. Yeah. And specifically to Paul, like aggressively dickish to Paul. Yes. That's what I'm saying. He's throwing his weight around to maximum effect and he's doing shit like, the Liberty Bell thing. Well, I was just going to say that's scary. That, that, that's where I think John was not a friend. Like imposing a manager who's doesn't like your partner, who's disrespectful to your partner, is just an awful thing to do. Yeah, it is. And at some point, like these guys aren't business guys; they are also best friends and partners. You know. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, I object to the characterization of like, oh, Paul, how could he go into the September 20th meeting and be so in denial and think that John actually likes him? It's like, well, <laughs> there's a lot of confusing shit coming from John right now. Yeah. I mean, and that I think that that's the insight. This is John swinging from one side to the other based on the latest activity in his life, basically. Plus. Every other thing that comes out of John's mouth is, oh, come on, you know me. You know I just say shit. You know I'm not serious. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so don't even trust anything so, you I know, say. T- like, take the glasses down. Come on, it's only me. You know I love you. Yeah. What? Like, what the fuck? <laughs> right? I'm sure he's like, I don't, I don't even know what to think anymore. Yeah. I mean, I think Paul always trusts that that guy is there. That guy who puts on glasses is there. But then again, you know, he goes to a meeting and John is like, oh, you didn't let me do this and you didn't let me do that, you know? Which, again, just sounds like grievances rather than a real desire to be separate. An inability to lead and have power within the group is a pretty different scenario than John was done and had no interest in the Beatles. Like, very different emotional spaces, you know? Right. 
Now they've had this experience. John's on top of the world, feeling like a huge success. And yet he does agree to what Klein wants, which is that John not say anything. I think we should discuss why John would have agreed to this. Because on the way there, if he's like, I'm going to quit the Beatles, and then he has an amazing experience, why wouldn't he be coming home going like, hell yeah, that's all the reinforcement I need to tell me that that was a good idea. He could call Paul from Toronto. Yeah. Hey, McCartney, guess what, bitch? I'm out of here. <laughs> Bang. <laughs> why not? What's, what's stopping him? Exactly. Exactly. Send him a telegram just saying, guess who is the star of the rock and roll? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yet, on the way back, he agrees to say nothing about his idea of quitting. So let's explore that for a second. Why would he have done that? Okay. Well, one possibility would be just simple obedience to Klein. Klein knows best. He says, all right, John, cool your jets. And Dodge just says, okay. Because he just does what whatever Klein says. Okay, Klein's the daddy. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Two... Client's like, all right, but we got to get these contracts signed, and I don't want you to spook Paul, so don't say anything, because then he might not sign the contract. Right. John wants those contracts signed. And, you know, we've got evidence that John needs money at this point. We just went through the fact that he was complaining that he couldn't get any money out of Apple. Klein has been renegotiating this deal, and it's much, much more lucrative for the Beatles about their past albums, but it requires them to do future albums too. You know, it's a bit crazy because if John is staying quiet for that reason, he knows that they're signing a future deal together. You know, maybe he's just willing to do it because he wants the money. He's not going to fuck up Klein's better deal for them, right? So they're required to put out albums in the future but it, they can be Beatles or solo so even if the Beatles do break up let's say they get the paper signed and then John you know the next day goes guess what I quit <laughs> right right <Suckers. laughs> it would still be okay as long as they continued to all stay at Apple and all continue to put their solo records out right I think probably John's able to justify this in his mind in that he's thinking you know what we can all go solo and this is still a way better deal for us, you know? So I'm not fucking them. Yeah. And I think that there's an expectation that everyone's going to make solo albums. I mean, I don't think anybody assumes that that's going to, anyone's going to retire at that point. Right. Right. right? They're, they're young men and they all are still making music. So. Right. Right. They're shockingly, shockingly young men given the amount of time they've been famous and what they look Seriously. like at the time. But the fact that they are signing this deal and John is willing to be quiet and, and willing to go along with it suggests that this threat of quitting is kind of the best scenario for him in that he gets to have the fantasy of quitting. And he knows that they are tied to each other. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that deal ties them all together basically as partners still. And I think that's a really big deal because... Whether John wants to go off and do his own thing creatively for a while, I think that knowing that he is fundamentally tied to his family, the Beatles, would provide an incredible amount of security and safety to him. I agree. The threat of quitting the Beatles is not a threat of severing ties. He doesn't want to sever. 
He wants to extend the contract. He wants Paul to fucking sign with Klein and get with the program. Right. So there's you a know. lot of things going on here. And the fact that he is willing to not say anything to me suggests that he, he wants to get this deal signed. And, and again, I think that allows this little fantasy in his mind. It's not necessarily a real thing. By saying it out loud to everybody on the plane and by saying it to Alan Klein and Yoko and Eric Clapton and Alan White, who doesn't give a fuck, you know. Like well, Eric Clapton either. Around. Yeah, Eric Clapton either. Yeah, he, he was just exactly. like, whatever. You're... Haven't you already quit? I don't know. Yeah. Like, don't, doesn't one of you quit every week? <laughs> right. So he can shoot his mouth off and then not do anything about it. I mean, that's the ultimate, like having your cake and eating it too. Yes, exactly. So, but you know, he's been told that he can't say anything. And so yeah. that so he's that, like, okay, well that's fine. I don't mind. I get to sit on that for a few days yes. and, and and see how it feels. Yes. And enjoy the feeling. <laughs> yeah. And then what's funny is we have that quote from Anthony Fawcett where he's describing John in the in in the sort of aftermath or the afterglow, if you will, of Toronto. Right. This is from the Womack book. He says, a week after the return from Toronto, Lennon struggled with whether or not to tell the other Beatles about his inclination. It was not an easy decision, his assistant Anthony Fawcett later recalled. I watched him agonize for days over it, irritable, chain smoking, and impossible to be around, skulking in his bedroom, losing himself in sleep or drugging himself with television. Yeah. Well, that to me sounds like he's obsessing. Yes. And he's like grumbling, you know, like talking to himself about Paul. God damn it. For sure. <laughs> having having an which, argument in his mind. You which know? seems to be like his pattern for the rest of his entire life. Like based on every account of everyone who's ever worked for John, that kind of seems like his MO. Yeah. I mean, doesn't he, he admits this, that he overthinks things, overanalyzes, runs through things, can't sleep because he's obsessing about Paul. Yeah. <laughs> this could be, he's come back and he's like, fuck them. Everybody there loved me. Also, by the way, he could be tweaking, Yeah, you know, skulking in his bedroom, losing himself in sleep or drugging himself with television. I mean, that could be just the behavior of somebody who's on heroin too. <laughs> Drugging himself on television. It's like here he was contemplating the breakup, binging on ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, he's got like a heroin habit. He's starting exactly. Let's forget about that. Damn it, Yoko. Let's go out for Hagen <laughs> I can't take this anymore. Uh, yeah. It's a little ridiculous. Certainly John is worked up. I think that's the one thing that this recollection or anecdote tells us is that John is working through something. There's something that's uh, upsetting. You know, the way it's being spun now, um, this sort of modern uh, spin on this is that John was super thoughtful and that he had really given this a lot of quiet concentration and yep. consideration, and he deliberated carefully for three days, and he came up to a, a you know, it's a hard decision. A solemn yes. conclusion. Yeah, exactly. Instead of like walking around chain smoking, grumbling and irritable yeah. and cranky and whatever, like that is more like somebody who's heated. Right. He's mad at Paul. Right. He's wound up. Yeah. So fuck it. Oh, I'm gonna leave. God damn it. You know what? 
Although we could, if Paul wasn't such a fucking cunt, we could go back and make an album, like I suggested. And they could do my song, which everybody at the festival loved. Exactly. But you know what? Fuck it. I don't even want to play with him anymore. I'm sick of him. I'm sick of his shit. He's going to hate it when I come out with a fucking solo album, and it's way better than fucking Abbey Road. (laughs) And where's Yoko? (laughs) She's watching TV. She's smoking. She's like, will you shut up? Please shut up. Yeah. If I... Please stop talking about Paul. Oh, my God. Just quit. Just quit. Yes, yes, yes. If he drives you that crazy, then leave. And he's like, yeah, but you don't understand. He he acts like this is his band. This is not his his band. I started this band. This is my band. (laughs) And he never listens to anything. I know better if he would only listen to me and take on Klein. And then we could get over all this bullshit. Right, exactly. Well, that that part is true. Paul probably doesn't listen. Well, this is something that we have discussed. We've talked about Paul being strong, that it would have been really hard for him to be in this position of three against one. But one of the defining characteristics of Paul is that he he always believes he's right and he won't listen. He trusts himself. But I'm just paraphrasing here, but it's a cute anecdote in that um, Bramwell and Paul go to a pub one day and they get trapped in it because it's pouring rain. And so they end up just drinking together and Paul's getting on one of his little fun rants. You know, he's, he's sort of performing and he's talking about Lennon. Lennon's, you know, just middle-class and he's working class. And John says, I can't be told anything. And, you know, you never listen. And it's kind of cute, but it also conveys the fact that this is, the arguments that they have is John gets yeah, this, really this, this. frustrating to John that Paul will never listen and can't be told anything. And so, yeah, you know, it's an existing issue between them. it's an existing issue. And this is a good example of the fact that Paul didn't listen to John and it drove yeah. John crazy. There's a lot of evidence to the fact that Paul can be pretty pigheaded. I think time has proven that his heart was in the right place when it came to Klein and wanting to save the Beatles and do the best for the Beatles. And I'm sure it played into his sense of betrayal, because how dare anybody question that, you know? On the other hand, from John's perspective, like like Paul's going to think he's right, whether he is or not. Right, right. So John's used to this, to Paul digging in and thinking he's right. And in this particular time, to John, George, and Ringo, who are lazier than Paul, I mean, they are. They all admit to that. They are. They are. Yeah, it's true. It's a high bar. Yeah, it is. It doesn't make them lazy. It just makes them lazier Lazier, exactly. I mean, they all work a tremendous amount. So I do not want to suggest that they are lazy. But Paul is insane. And you know what? Nobody wants to work as much as Paul. This is no judgment on any of them. But, But somebody to come in and take care of shit, like Klein promised to do, probably just seemed great like john probably was like trust me and my opinion he's going to help us he's going to clean things up why can't you just listen to me i can tell this is a good guy you know and and paul's like well i I don't know i I think he might be a crook and john's like i know he's a crook i don't but i like him he's gonna be our crook he's gonna be on our side he's stealing for us we can trust him right right. (laughs) and paul's like i don't know that that's true john he had a strong case for not liking Klein. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. not a hundred percent like the guys weren't just being mean. I, I think that they have 
a reason for wanting to go with Klein. He charmed them. He convinced them that he would do all the work for them, that he was going to get them better deals. Yeah, and I think they were just frustrated and tired and just wanted someone to take control. All that we can really conclude from that anecdote is that John was very worked up at that time. The whole month, John was conflicted, reactionary. You know, in in no way was he thoughtful and consistent. And on the way to Toronto, he did say that he was thinking of quitting. So, you know, this certainly was an idea that was going through John's head at the time. Anthony says it was not an easy decision. I watched him agonize for days over it. If he's struggling with a decision, then he hasn't decided. What do we think he wanted at this time that he wasn't getting? Like, maybe we should explore that for a second. The story is always about John needed freedom. And I think it's worthwhile just spending a minute to talk about, well, what did John need at this point? So number one, I think he wants Klein in control of everything. Because that would give him more leverage. You know, Klein's his guy. He champions him. He likes Klein. He knows Klein's going to be on his side. So his guy would be in charge. Well, I think he wants a manager who talks sweet to him, which Mm -hmm. Klein does. Well, I mean, he said it himself. You know, Klein came in. He was smart. He knew I was the real leader. Um, Everybody thought it was Paul, but it was really me. And he knew that I wrote most of the songs. He made John feel special. When Brian died, things changed. I mean, you know... Brian was a good advocate of John's. I think no matter what, you know, Brian loved all the Beatles, but but he did really love John Lennon. Just the fact well, that Brian's in love with John makes John feel special. You know? Yeah, he loves John the best. Of course, all the Beatles like to feel special and respected and paid attention to and all that shit. Every, but, every but, human being yeah. does. But but John for sure knows he's daddy's favorite. I mean, that's there's no question about it. Actually, even Marianne Faithful said that. There is um, a part in the book, In My Life, the Brian Epstein story. And she said, whether or not Brian did go to bed with John, just the fact that Brian wanted to would have given John a bit of power that he probably shouldn't have had or might have abused. And then she says that, um, I'm not saying he shouldn't have had that power, but he may not have known how to use it. So again, she ties John's power in the group to Brian, and she was somebody who was an observer. Um, Well, and I think that that maybe was necessary between Paul being a little bit more powerful in the studio and having a tight relationship with George Martin, even though George Martin, I think, loves John, too. You know, maybe John needed that to feel good. Yeah. So I think when Klein came in and was like, I got it, man. You're the leader. You're the brains behind the operation. You're the special guy. You know, he just knew what John needed to hear. And like like any good con man, he said the right words. And he walked the walk. Yeah. We know that John said in 67, like, I always wanted people to let me be the leader. And so John having his guy be the manager gives him extra power to to be the leader of the group because he's got another advocate behind him and behind Yoko as well, because we know part of the reason that Klein got in was because he was a a champion of Yoko's. He flattered Yoko. He championed her. He said he was going to give her shows. So all of a sudden, John and Yoko have somebody saying, well, you know, let's listen to these two versus, you know, Paul's in-laws that were like, well, what about Paul? Yeah, right, right, right. You know, and so could he not get fucked over in this deal? And John's like, "Oh, here we go again. Here we go again." 
But this is how John does maneuver things. He doesn't just go out and fight for things one-on-one. <laughs> yeah, right. He gets a posse. Like, he gets you. Yeah, he does. He gets the true. other two guys. He gets, you know what I mean? Like, and that's smart. He gets a team together. Yeah, and, and he got so one in media, too. He got a media team. He got a media. He got Rolling Stone. And, the, you know, Paul should have learned something from this, that yeah. Paul will fight, but he can't win the battle on his own, you know, and he should have learned John always had a gang, you know. And so, again, I, I don't actually criticize John for that. I, it's It was smart negotiating on his part. So we know that he wanted that. He was frustrated by the inability to get Klein in. And that was frustrating him. I think something else that we've talked about is that maybe John just needed to be rid of the responsibility of the Beatles, of like having to check in to make decisions. And he wanted the ability to go and be weird and play and fuck up and not have to answer to anyone for a while. You know, maybe John needed some space to do that. Yeah, totally. Um, But I think there's another element to it beyond like having the space to do his side projects, which he had. Another big point that nobody ever addresses at all is that he kind of abandoned all those things as soon as he left the Beatles. Like he just went right back to music. That's right. And stuck with music. Yeah. So as much as I say something like that, like he just needed room to play you know, that's so in my mind about the Lennon story, like he needed creative freedom. It's like, oh, yeah, he had all that. And we just described it. And he stopped doing most of that. Like he the did. Couple of other films. Well, that's and a- then they, they jumped on the peace train, you know, which they could have done with the Beatles, too. Yes. But I think there's another element to that besides the freedom to explore himself as an artist. I think that he just wants freedom from having to answer to a committee because the Beatles are democratic. He needs consensus on big things like singles and albums and what they're going to put out and stuff like that. And I think he's just tired of that. I think he just wants, it's not the authors and the Lennon guys. They always call it freedom because I think that word is sexier to them than independence, which is what I think it is. Like, I think there is a fine difference there because freedom is not John Lennon. That's That's Paul Paul McCartney. McCartney. That's a Paul word, by the way. John wants security. He wants the opposite of freedom. But I do see that he wants independence from the body politic of the Beatles, right? He doesn't want to have to yeah, that's right. get permission and, and approval for everything he does. And there's actually a, qual- a quote from Paul in 97. He said, John had been an art student and he buckled down with the Beatles because it was democratic and he had to. But then he wanted to cut loose and do all these things he'd read about artists and books doing. <laughs> you know, it, it could sound kind of condescending, like he's just, he's being a poser artist, but I, I don't think Paul means it like that. I think. No, I think he's like exploring the fantasy that he had yeah. when he was like 20, you know? Yes. He says it affectionately. He doesn't say it condescendingly. Um, and as an artist, I'm sure Paul did that in his own way too, right? He did. You know, he just, did. Yeah. Outside the Beatles. I mean, yes, frankly, because again, Paul McCartney's on a long fucking leash and always, always, always was. Yeah. He does See, whatever the, the fuck he wants. That's true. You know, this idea of creative differences, I find so frustrating. This is the reason why we keep making fun of Doggett. Paul was very involved in the avant-garde in 1966 and 1967. There is no reason 
why Paul and John are so different on this front. Like Paul was doing this before John. And that Yoko met Paul first because he's in this world. Why do we think that they're so different when one explored it and then the other explored it? They're exactly the same in terms of their interest in developing as artists. If we drop the extremes of their personalities, the Maxwell and the Cold Turkey, how different is their work that year? Well, they they work together on, on Come Together. They work together on Don't Let Me Down. I mean, on I've Got a Feeling, on The Long Medley. You know, it's like John likes, oh, darling. Um, so where is this creative difference? Because I think it's just manufactured. It's a way to explain things. Because I agree. When you dig into- I agree. What is a creative difference? Like, I don't like that one song that you did. That yes, we put exactly. Up, like, there's like 220 Lennon McCartney songs or something like that. Within the Beatles, Paul was always more independent. So now at this point, John feels like he needs some independence to distinguish himself. And this ties to what we said before about how he had this image of being, you know, a filmmaking couple or an avant-garde couple. Like these are, you know, he just needed time to explore some of these things. Although again, John's idea of independence is like, merging his name and identity with another person. Yeah, yeah it's going from Lennon McCartney to John and Yoko. So. Yes, right. Again, so freedom is a bit of a misnomer. I really, it, I hate when I read freedom over and over again in a book because it's it just turns John Lennon into a myth. The idea that he had to, you know, distinguish himself is a different story because he felt like he needed to create a new identity to be able to come back stronger and to compete the other thing it does is it makes the Beatles the ball and chain, you know, something to be escaped from, something negative almost. Yes, because a hero needs an antagonist. John needs something to push off of, and there needs to be a villain in the story, or it doesn't work. The difference in how we see this story is instead of this being John's individual hero story, we see the Beatles much more as a love story that continues. Right. We are looking at the creative love story of Lennon-McCartney. That's right. That's right. I mean, if you look at the Lennon-McCartney partnership as a love story between creative partners, that of course there's ups and downs. There's periods where one of them feels like they need to strengthen themselves. They need to be a bit more individual. They get bored. You know, this is all part of being a partnership. And so I think that the mistake is to assume that because it's morphing, that it's died. There's so much evidence in the seventies to suggest it never died. We're saying, let's look at it a different way. And so right now we're looking at John Lennon who may need something, who may need to do something independent, but that doesn't mean that the love story ends. Right. So we are asking people to reimagine this story, like put aside the one that you have been told since, you know, 1970 that this is the end and then John Lennon is reborn as the right. superior artist and he is now allowed to flourish. And, and while, while Paul has his creative death, you know, that's kind of the story, right? Yes. This story is, is traditionally told as Paul's death and John's rebirth into a greater artist. We don't buy that. We don't believe it. We're not into it. And we are telling you a different story. That's right. From hero story of one of the Beatles to a love story, 
specifically the creative love story between Lennon and McCartney. Like all love stories, it has its ups and downs. And we hypothesize that this may have been one of the down periods, which by the way, I think they always had. Like, I I don't think that it's unique to this period of 68 or 69. We have evidence that this happened also in 65 and 66. Um, but they were able to repair it in the, at, at that time. Even going back in, in the early days, they've got some ups and downs. And the way that they repaired in, in 61 was to have a weekend alone. Have a weekend, have two weeks alone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, when they go to Paris. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that that's the point, though, is if this is their pattern, that they have amazing intense times that are absolute highs followed by lows because there's so much chemistry it's kind of combustible that uh they do of course always need time to repair and that requires time together and this is what's different about 68 is all of a sudden they don't have the ability to reconnect intimately in terms of like spend time one-on-one with each other because yoko is always present after that I think that it's underestimated how close they are, how dependent they are on each other in each other's lives. But yeah. again, when Yoko comes in, and we're not blaming Yoko for the breakup, it's just that she really changed the dynamic. And the question is, is whether John did that on purpose, whether he wanted <laughs> right. to break, break this cycle because it was too hurtful or hard or whatever. Right. Or he felt like his hand was forced. Yes, yes, that that could have been exactly, as we said in our first episode, more of a provocation. Yeah. Point being that, you know, if this is their their cycle, that they work together, they have incredible highs, they have this incredible closeness, but because they're so combustible, because they're so equal and powerful and brilliant, that they also occasionally need periods where they don't talk. They need a cooling off period. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and then there's lots of people around them. You know, P. Shotton says that they've got so much chemistry that it's not easy going for them. So, yeah, they need time with other people. They need cooling off. And then, of course, they want that high again, so they get back together. But this requires a period of repair. And that's what they don't have in this year. And so we suspect that things just start to spiral yeah, well, they don't have privacy or intimacy anymore. So, and again, this is a theme that John talks about. You know, he said once the lawyers got in, that Paul and John couldn't talk to each other. And Paul says this that he feels like people were turning John against him. You know, John says this too. So there was this idea that other people were turning them against each other. And again, they don't have this time to get together and be like, oh, it's all bullshit. Yes, you're the person I know. Is it a personal issue? Because that it's sometimes portrayed that way, that they're just different people at this time and don't like each other anymore. Well, that's an argument that I I find sort of stupid on its face because I, I guess the argument is like, oh, they were so different as if they finally noticed this after 12 years, <laughs> yeah, which yeah, is yeah. Oh ridiculous. It's like, yeah. yeah, they're different. That's why they're attracted to each other. Like, that's why it's so hot all the time, you know, like yeah, yeah. it's well, just a good recipe. So it might be helpful to liken them to a couple who has the hottest sex of their lives together. But when they're not having sex, they sometimes have trouble getting along. Like right, right, right. familiar with couples like that. 
if this is if this is the metaphor we're using that like these kind of couples have incredible chemistry you know they're so well matched they're equal they're attracted to each other but all those things also make them competitive and also make them combustible right so, so we know that we yeah. know that John and Paul were hugely competitive and we know that they that they butted heads we can believe at this time in September of 1969 that maybe John had a lot of resentments that were piling up. And we know for a fact that both of them could get really worked up and angry over the other one, like, for, well, that's forever. The thing is that even Paul says that. He says that to Selvich in 1986 that, you know, there were a lot of highs and a lot of lows, but it was worth it. He would do it all over again. So, you know, that's just the way their relationship was. Well, and Paul's point was there was a lot more good than there was bad. You know, like the bad times were bad. But the upsides were enough they were worth to, make, it. They were, to make it worth <laughs> yeah. it. I think it was always like this. The best creative pairs are very similar in some ways and very different in others. Enough similarity that they're bonded, but enough difference to keep each other always interested and on their toes, to keep the tension there. So, and again, that's not always comfortable. You know, it's exciting. That's why they never stop being interested in each other because it's exciting. Like nobody else can quite exactly. match yes. them. And I think books who are trying to explain like why it fell apart, they fall into this kind of dopey explanation of like, well, it was just that Paul was so different and he just realized he didn't like him after all. Whereas I think the thing that drew them together never went away. That's right. I, I they, completely agree. They always had that chemistry. They always had that desire for each other. You see that in, in when they get on stage in 69. That's not gone. And it's not <laughs> fake. The minute they step right. on stage, it's there. But I think when they are not allowed to make that connection and have that intimate time, what's left over is just all the frustrating, upsetting stuff. If we have the greatest sex in the world, but we're not having sex, then what That's are right. we doing? All we're doing is fighting, going to meetings, you know. Yep. And like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And in the early days, I think that Brian did do a good job of playing referee and making sure that they got back together. Whereas Klein, as much as I think he wanted to represent all of the Beatles, he doesn't know Paul. He doesn't have a relationship with Paul. He doesn't know how to bring them together, even if he wanted to, you know, he can't. Because he's on Team John at this point. And the, the Eastmans can't do that either. And so they don't have somebody that's able to bridge them at this point. So that leaves them with arguing about money and who gets to be in charge. You know, there's a several quotes from Paul where he, where he says, it was just so awful. It was just meeting after meeting at Apple. And like, I can't even express to you how bad it was. I hated them so much. Right. And they're really pitted against each other. And it's really awful when that's also the person that you really love. And in fact, you create the magic of everything from the, the bond between you guys. It's such a terrible position. It's always framed like, oh, the Eastmans are Linda's in-laws. It's like, oh, gross. You're actually using your family to represent you. It's like, of course you would use your family attorney for your legal matters. Especially yeah. when they are incredibly well-respected, famous entertainment lawyers. It's so stupid. Like, no shit. Of course he's going to use his father-in-law. 
And then I feel like Klein, because he represents John and Yoko, he's like their family attorney. And I feel like when the Eastmans and Klein start battling each other, it's almost as if John and Paul are already starting divorce proceedings. Yeah, it's like a proxy war. Yeah, it really that, is. Yeah. And it happens right after the weddings. That's true. After Paul gets married and then John and Yoko get married, all of a sudden they're... their loyalties are hugely divided because I think you're right to point out that it's one thing if Klein is just John's guy, but because he's Yoko's guy as well, he can't walk away unless she is also okay. You know, if, if John decided like, fuck it, I'm just going to go with the Eastman's, you know, I want to solve this with Paul. Then his wife's like, what? You know, yeah, that's my guy. So it puts John in a really t- difficult position. The point of it is that John and Paul are on opposite sides of the table now. And they're, they're exactly, they're, they're opponents point. now. In a matter of like four months from the weddings to this yeah. point, they have gone from partners best friends to now they are on opposite sides and they are fighting tooth and nail. Again, John said this in Rolling Stone that he was maneuvering incredibly hard. So if he's maneuvering, he's maneuvering specifically against Paul because the other three are with him. So all of his maneuvering is against Paul. And I think the problem with this situation is that you can get so emotionally attached to winning that, you know, that I suspect especially on John's side, that he couldn't empathize with Paul anymore. And so he stopped seeing Paul's outreach. And I think it could be because John is so worked up and so angry about the situation and so adamant about winning and proving himself that he can't get to that goodwill space that he and Paul usually have. And that's the position we're in in 1969. Things are spiraling. Remember how Pete Shotton said that when John came back from India in May 68, it was the lowest he'd ever seen John, and he said John was humiliated. Yep. We can sort of theorize things that he might be struggling with at this time. We do know that his marriage is kind of, you know, on the rocks. They're just kind of going through the motions. He later indicates that he was having a crisis of self-confidence and identity and he wrote a lot of songs that were very concerning at that time (laughs) right look at me your blues um yeah i'm so tired yeah so right so again you know um his his buddy p who is his um playmate confidant you know staying (laughs) in his house doing tape loops with him and stuff he says it, it this was the lowest point of John's life that he had witnessed. And this is the environment where John jumps to Yoko. But what occurred to me is that this sounds like the same setting that we're in right now in September of 69. Right. I agree with that. It is an echo of that. And when we look at what John said at that time, he said, I started fighting back, which are weird words from John because it seems like he didn't need to be fighting back. But I guess in his mind... From his perspective, he did. We seem to be in this same spot again. This is an echo of 15, 16 months earlier. Yeah. And that both times, the the relationship that most suffers is the relationship with Paul. You know, it's like out of everyone, Paul is the target. 
Why is it in this situation where we've talked about like the Apple staff and the, the avant-garde intelligentsia, you know, he, he's not the reason for some of right. these. You know, I was thinking about that Esther Perel quote that I mentioned mm-hmm. earlier, that people never fight about the things that you think you're fighting about. That if the original wound at some point was that John felt like Paul didn't care enough or that Paul rejected him in some way, you know, wasn't there enough for him, whatever John in his mind thought, I think that that is the lens with which he starts seeing Paul after that. And so all of these are kind of confirmation biases, like you know, oh, you didn't like Klein. You're not going along with my view for the Beatles. You're not going along with my song. And I think he's taking all of these things personally. Like this says something about how much he cares for me. It's compounding. And the reason why it gets taken out most on Paul is because he's so hurt by whatever whatever happened between them, I think was never healed. So that's what keeps triggering it. You know, he could have gotten mad at other people, but his biggest wound is still from Paul. And everything Paul does now, John reads as, you don't care about me. You don't think that much of me. And eventually he's like, so I'm going to fucking hurt you back. Yeah, well, I agree. And I I think just as, you know, in late May of 68, when he started to bring her around, eliciting whatever reaction he got from Paul, which I think probably at first was like, okay. And then eventually it was like, we're still doing this. She's still here. Finally, like, yeah, okay, fine. It does bother me. You made your point. Yes, I'm, I'm annoyed by this. I think that the satisfaction that he got from disrupting his relationship was satisfying, you know? To a certain extent. But then the problem was, is like, we've got um, interviews with Paul later where he said, what was I supposed to do? Fight for him? I couldn't fight for him. You know, this was his, his girlfriend, his, the love of his life, you know? And it was kind of like, yeah, Paul, you were supposed to fight for him. Like, I think that, that John enjoyed the attention, but then you were supposed to prove that you really cared And that's where Paul's like, well, what could I do? You know, it was his girlfriend. That's where I think that it becomes so confusing. If he brought in a creative partner, Paul could have fought. When he brings in a creative partner that is also his girlfriend, it it puts Paul into a huge bind. In May 68, when he's lost, he finds something new, which is that always helps people. He starts something new with Yoko. This is different. This is new. But he also finds a way to hurt Paul. And I I think that that made him feel better. Not because John is like a piece of shit and a sadist or something, but I think it made him feel better because it gave him a little hand back. And well, it also let him know that that Paul Paul cared. cared. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So when he did that in 68, he started to get attention. They started to do things that were provocative, that, you know, were probably a little scary, but exciting to John. And so that was a new thrill. Plus they started heroin. He's got a new love interest. So that was a thrill too. So I think he was legitimately distracted then. And then also I'm sure he loved how much attention he got in the studio now. Like, all eyes were on John yeah. from that minute onwards. Yeah. Not necessarily in a good way. It's like, what the fuck's up with John? Yeah, but like when he walks but, into the studio, everyone is suddenly at attention and on eggshells, and he gets yep. to dictate the mood of the day. 
nothing really radically changed. She got more attention, but things didn't resolve. I think fundamentally in 68, he didn't fix the thing. Right. Whatever wound was there was not healed. And so here we go with this same situation again. Well, I agree. And I think Paul and John have been treading water for a year and a half. Yep. And that's basically where we leave things. Thanks for listening. Please stay tuned because we'll be back very shortly with a twin episode on Paul. If you enjoy Another Kind of Mind and One Sweet Dream, please consider leaving us a five-star review. Till next time. MSW Media.